0: Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Michael Lutz. I'm Cameron Councilman. And today we are going to be talking about uh, Playing With Feelings, Video Games and Affect by Aubrey Annable. I think that's how you say her name.
1: I think so. I went and listened to like the intro of a podcast that she did, just okay. to make sure that we got the... the um uh, pronunciation right, so I think it, that's right. Annabelle.
0: Okay, all right, and yeah, this book uh, was published in 2018 by University of Minnesota Press. Um, and where where is Annabelle? Where is she teaching now? Uh, the back of the book says assistant professor of film studies at Carleton, and I think that's, that's still right. true. She's at Carleton. Yeah. Yeah. Carleton is in Canada. Yes, the the Canadian Carleton, because there is a Carleton College in Minnesota. I think. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a uh, college
1: chat for this month. We'll mm-hmm. see you next month. Later. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, Michael, you chose this book mm-hmm. um, for,
0: for this. And, and this is her only book, too, I believe, correct? Um, a little bit uh, about her um, that comes up in in this. She might have another book. So she technically was doing her Ph.D. in human-computer interaction. Um. Yeah. So she's published uh, essays and things. This, this might be her only book. You might be right about that. Yeah, I think so.
1: Looking at her faculty page, this looks like the it, several chapters and things like that. But uh, this is the only monograph.
0: So, yes, I chose this uh, because we have I think we've talked about affect theory before. Like it's come up um, in a couple of places, I think, in some previous episodes. But we haven't really had a book that was dedicated to affect theory as such, and I thought it might be interesting to have a book that was about game studies and affect theory uh, that could maybe operate as an introduction to affect theory more broadly for our readers, since or our readers, our listeners. Um, Since, in, in many ways, I think a lot of the books that we touch on are not just like game studies books, but they're also kind of like introductory methods to how this particular school of thought interacts with with video games as a concept um so that was my that was my hope for this book
1: yeah and it's not well it's an interesting case um it, you know we've kind of gone back and forth between um, books that are kind of central to the field you know these kind of like you know like gaming we did last uh, last episode and then more newer books that have you know, Either A, not enough time has passed to know if it is uh, kind of a big staple of the field, or B, it's just something outside the field completely that we're checking out because we think is cool. Um, and this book is kind of an interesting combination of both those things because it is both a new book, you know, as you said, came out in 2018, but it also is has kind of made a big name for itself already. It won the Society for Cinema and Media Studies New Book Award um, for 2018. And so, so already people are kind of like excited about it and thinking that it is critical to the field. Now, importantly, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies award is chosen by scholars from across the field so this is not a game study specific award um, mm-hmm. but you know just to give people an idea of how that, that shakes out um, but nevertheless kind of already making an impact so yeah I, I, here at the top two uh, you know I this is, this is an interesting case this is the first time that we have read a book that like is speaking to me right and mm-hmm. um, you know, in the, I guess kind of in the way that you um, that, that you felt when you read "Gaming the Stage," right? Of like, this is a this is a book that is like deeply in your discipline, right? And like things mm-hmm. you care about, and it's speaking directly to you. And so you had a lot of you know fine grained disagreements and agreements, and kind of. Um, feelings about that book Mm -hmm. um but ultimately positive ones because i think that you and and gina bloom are uh you know you're you're paddling your raft in the same direction yes you know it's the method of the paddle that might be a little different but not substantially different Mm -hmm. The, the the weird place that playing with feelings puts me in is that i similarly am on the same river perhaps um you know i'm interested in Broadly, theories of affect. I'm interested in ways of thinking through how players are brought into connections with games. You know, my, my dissertation is partly on, it's certainly what my master's thesis was on, several publications I've done. They're all kind of around these things. What are new and different ways or new methodologies of thinking about how players come into contact with their games and are kind of brought into relationships with them? Mm-hmm. However, and this is, this is like kind of the big however, Annabelle specifically gears this book around the idea that the things that I think are wrong. Mm-hmm. So it kind of puts me in a weird spot of, of you know, um, and we'll get into like the distinctions between that in the, in the introduction in the first chapter, but it kind of puts me in a weird spot of... I'm reading this book. I largely agree with all of the general claims being made, right, about, about the way that games work, about what they do to us. But the methodology of this book is explicitly positioned to say the things that I think are correct or, or right or whatever are just factually incorrect and wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we'll talk about the distinction in a minute. But basically, what um, Annabelle does is position um, Sylvan Tompkins's affect theory against, uh, the affect theory of Gilles Deleuze. Mm -hmm. And we can, you know, sometimes it's Deleuze, sometimes it's, it's other people too, but, but generally, and, you know, just to, to put all of my biases out in the open, right. I'm, I'm a Deleuzean. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I really do think that there's a lot of value to be found in Deleuze in game studies and especially Deleuze in game studies beyond the way that he's been used so far. And so I have a lot of like, Um, I think, positive tensions with this book, and I'm going to be flagging those. But, you know, I think people should be aware that, like, I have a bias here, and my bias is that I think, I agree uh, that these types of methods need to be applied, but I have some fine-grained distinctions about um, which versions of those methods I think are the most appropriate uh, to use. Right,
0: yeah. All right. So yeah, no, I just I, I wanted to mark that and I also wanted to, it to be known that I did not know that this is uh, precisely the way that this book was going to approach affect theory. Otherwise, I wouldn't have put Cameron on the spot. <laughs> uh, I I thought that uh, this would be a fun time for both of us. And instead, the book was telling Cameron that he was wrong. Um, that's
1: okay. I can be I can be wrong. But now in my in the power of my not award-winning podcast, <laughs> I can I can uh, voice my like very fine-grained distinctions. But um well, but but you said, you know, so I have kind of like a deep history and and long t- you know, long-term scholarly interest in affect and, and questions like this, but you know, how have you dealt with affect before, Michael? Is this a thing you've
0: read deeply in or um I mean, affect for me is Uh, it's a thing that always shows up kind of on the fringes of the work that I do if that makes sense Um, I have never for instance written, written an article or even like a seminar paper that was full on this is me doing affect theory, mm-hmm. but I tend to use affect theory, uh, in certain, in my dissertation, it shows up in a couple of places, um, because I, I am doing there a, a lot of what, uh, actually is happening in this book, which is trying to figure out how, uh, this media object, in my case, the theater, um, sort of creates and sustains, um, emotional relationships with its audience. Um, but, generally speaking i suppose my sense of affect usually comes through like the spinozist parts of Deleuze. so i'm probably mm-hmm. more of a, i'm more of a delusian than i am a sylvan tompkins kind of person in in the final analysis um and then of course the the thinkers that uh get trotted out here sort of the roster of affect theorists that um are turned to uh are eve Kosofsky sedgwick um lauren berlant sarah ahmed and sian ningai um who are all people that I've read, um, but they're not necessarily all people that I use. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and
1: yeah, to, to like I've read quite a bit of Berlant. Um, weirdly, I've like seen Berlant speak three times or something. Um, wow, just at like different events. Uh, it just it just kept happening while I was in graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps happening. Um, yeah. But, and Cyan Nye is actually a huge part of my dissertation. My, my dissertation is actually written around a combinatory method of reading uh, Nye's aesthetic categories with um, Deleuzean diagrams, and, and I'll talk about diagrams a little bit uh, here <laughs> in this episode today. But, but yeah, similarly, I've uh, weirdly enough, I've also read those kind of like outside the Deleuzean
0: spot too. Uh, how Annabelle defines affect for this particular project. Um, This comes relatively early on. She says, "Um, I use the term affect in this book to refer to the aspects of emotions, feelings, and bodily engagements that circulate through people and things, but are often registered only at the interface, at the moment of transmission or contact, when affect gets called up into representation. So that's the way she is uh, handling affect in case uh, anyone out there listening was wondering what the hell affect is, uh, because I realized we probably didn't get, do a good job of really explaining what the hell that meant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's
1: the weird thing about affect theory, right, in a, in a general sense. Um, and if you're, like, involved in academia, uh, you know, in the contemporary time period or the past 10 years or so, you probably heard affect in, in a general sense, but unless you've read any of the books or you... Um, have gone to the conferences or whatever, right? Or taken a course on it. I think you can come away with a very vague sense of what, what affect is. And partially that's because there, as she points out several different strands of, of affect theory, but, but the, the general gist of it, um, as you were saying earlier, Michael, um, it comes out of Spinoza, right? Um, or the initial idea for it. And I've actually got a quotation that I want to read. So, a big book, um, you know, 10 years ago or so that came out, or yeah, it came out in 2010, um, was The Ethic Theory Reader, which was Greg and Seagorth. Um, and it basically was like, since the late 80s early 90s there has been a rise in people writing about this concept of affect and they um define it in different ways and they talk about it in very different scenarios so some people are talking about it in clinical psychology some people talk about it in pure philosophy some people are talking about it in relationship to media objects all this kind of stuff and so they create the the affect theory reader as a way of like trying to demonstrate these are the different strains and strands the piece that i really like out of that book and i've gone back to it multiple times and anytime i'm trying to like define affect for someone i um i I have them read this one essay and it's megan watkins's essay desiring recognition accumulating affect it's like buried in the dead middle of the book you know it's not Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't get like star status in the book but i think it's to the detriment of the book actually i think if it were like at the very top i think a lot more people would read it and engage with it but yeah basically she draws a picture of us of the originating moment of affect in the work of uh brooke spinoza and spinoza is a se- uh, 17th century seven, okay so 17th century um theologian and philosopher um and political philosopher as mm-hmm. well he also Wrote- made
0: lenses yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that was his—that uh, was his like day job. Yeah, that was his day right? job. Is he—he—he he, he was a lens grinder, and then in the afternoon he was writing political philosophy. Megan Watkins um, begins her essay with this. I'll just read it. The first paragraph.
1: Um, she says, "In studies of affect, much is made of the ways in which it is distinct from emotion. Right? Affect versus emotion. That is me editorializing. I'll stop doing that. I don't know why I would do that. Okay." <laughs> Back to her. Against the more social expression of emotion, affect is most viewed as a preliminal, pre-conscious phenomenon. A consequence of this is that affect is often conceived as autonomous and ephemeral. Its immediate impact is highlighted, the ways in which affect can arouse individuals or groups in some way, but then seems to dissipate quickly, leaving little effect. While this distinction is a productive one for dealing with the particular types of affective experience, it doesn't account for the distinction Spinoza makes between affectus and affectio, the force of an affecting body and the impact it leaves on the one affected. Affectio may be fleeting, but it, also, but it may also leave a residue, a lasting impression that produces particular kinds of bodily capacities. As Spinoza explains, the body can undergo many changes and nevertheless retain impressions or traces. It is this capacity of affect to be retained, to accumulate, to form dispositions and thus, thus shape subjectivities that is of interest to me. It suggests that we grapple with this as a pedagogic process, whereby a sense of self is formed through engagement with the world and others and the affects this generates. In turning attention to the cumulative aspects of affect, however, I don't want to simply invert the focus of scholarly discussion. I am keen to explore both dim- dimensions of affect, its ability to function as force and capacity, affectus and affectio. While a discussion of accumulation may seem to emphasize the latter, affectio is very much a product of affectus, and so affect as force or the processural affect or aspect of affect is in fact embedded in a discussion of affective capacity. Affect is importantly a relational phenomenon, and using an exploration of pedagogy to theorize affect highlights this relationality. Now, that's a long quote, but I think that's actually really helpful for getting a handle on affect. It is both, for, for Watkins at least, and I think there's some some um, discussion to be had here with the way that that uh, Annibal positions it, but for Watkins doing a traditional Spinozist interpretation here, and Spinoza goes down through Deleuze and then down through a number of different uh, 20th century thinkers, the idea here is that our, our collapse of two different ideas into the wor- word affect is both a process, right? It's a thing that's happening to you that's shooting through you, and it's a kind of pooling or a solidification, a, a formation of habits. Mm-hmm. And those are both captured in affect, right? It's it's kind of uh, almost like a, a verb and a noun. It's not quite, but it, it has that kind of
0: feeling to it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a helpful thing to to be sitting on, right? So, and that lets us unpack a bit of what Annabelle is trying to get at by talking about, um, like, so for instance, the 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 sentence she has in her definition or the of the phrase that that when affect gets called up into representation. Um, Without sort of the the backing, uh, it is probably pretty hard for someone listening who doesn't know what affect theory is to understand what the hell that means.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And another critical word here, and this is something that's going to shoot through the rest of this uh, book, so we should probably talk about it here at the very top. What is representation? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is kind of a hard, another
0: hard thing to do. Do you, do you want to talk about representation, Michael, or do you want me to, to dive on this grenade? So um, I will, I will, I will point at the grenade and I will talk about it, and then you can dive on it. <laughs> uh, so uh, representation, um, as Annabel is using it here, uh, is of course kind of the idea of um, so the the distinction. Uh, that is kind of being made in in Watt's definition that you read between emotion and affect is is worth revisiting because of course we we are probably familiar with emotions um, and we know what these are right happy angry sad whatever uh, scared the things that happen in aff- like affect theory basically says okay so the names that we give these these feelings. Um, the ways that we talk about them, the ways that they enter into kind of, like, discourse as as concepts, um, that is a way of representing what we feel. And what we feel is never actually fully encompassed by the way that we represent it, right? Affect is, in this line of thinking, a kind of um, pre-subjective, like, uh, sometimes depending on your thinker, right, uh, sometimes instinctual, but... Uh, It's probably more helpful to think of it as kind of a reflexive uh, kind of force that is in some sense, not capable of being thought through in the moment of his experience, right? It's only as time passes that you can come to terms with like how angry you're feeling and how you can articulate that anger and sort of start channeling it and imagining it and so on and so forth. This is uh, one of the things I think that Annabelle is trying to get at is this idea that um, when we are playing video games and when we're, especially when we're like touching video games, cause she has, she talks about touch screens Later on, Um, there is a kind of emotional background, right? An ambient kind of emotional tendency, uh, that games can excite in us, um, right? Like games are essentially kind of like, uh, structures along which our affect kind of extends itself, right? They are, um programmed emotional experiences in to put it in a very very reductive way uh so that's one of the things that's going on that uh she is saying that essentially that games are capable of manipulating and like channeling affect and pulling it into uh, certain representational modes um So there's that. And she also points out, so we're still in the introduction, um, which is absolutely on on point for us. Uh Uh, But I think this is also the point where she uh, says that game studies has a problem with representation. So there, there are
1: two quotes on the back of this book from, you know, people who scholars in the field. You know, it's a common thing to do in an academic book. You get a, a pull quote. And it says, um, this is from Lisa Cartwright. This is the quote. Playing with feelings is one of the few works to deeply engage with the theory of affect as developed in media philosophy, sociology, and information studies relative to video games. Written with an eye to the canonical concerns circulating in the lucrative and vibrant field of game studies, it balances engagement with familiar themes and issues in the game studies and game theory world. My sense, and you and you tell me if you, if you think this is right, Michael, when... Uh, Annabelle is talking about game studies and the things that game studies writ large does it is with an eye to that canonical set of thinkers mm-hmm. um, and, and a canonical set of thinkers that I think is even maybe more delimited than uh, one that you might draw if you were just writing out some, um, some names so like to my mind and, and the most substantial criticism and engagement that, that come in this book are with Espen Arseth ian bogost uh friends myra miguel sicart um and i wrote some other ones down here too but but those and galloway galloway gets mm-hmm. kind of his own almost subchapter of mm-hmm. dealing with it which is all to say the, re- the reason that, that i bring that up is that there are several points in this book where she's making claims about what game studies currently does and as someone who is in game studies right now and someone who reads pretty extensively and you know but uh, one could say uh, you know, runs a podcast <laughs> dedicated to reading game studies. Sometimes the picture that she paints of game studies is not one that I necessarily agree with or recognize, which isn't to say that it isn't real and isn't to say that she isn't drawing um, important boundaries and distinctions here. But I, I just don't necessarily think that Bogost and Galloway and Arseth are our game studies. I don't think they're as representative as she makes them um, be, or at least they're not for me. And that could be a over selection process in that I'm invested enough to recognize that those are they are not the core of game
0: studies. Well, I have a theory about this, okay. and unfortunately, I don't know how much it works for you, um, but it works for me to some extent. Um, so, I, I agree. I will say, right there is there, the way that this book talks about game studies is. Um, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but, like, it it, it was accurate maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. That's sort of how I feel. There is a way that this uh, book approaches game studies as sort of this canonical uh, list of names that, that you've mentioned, Arseth um, and Bogost um, and Sikart and Galloway and so on. Approaching them uh, and sort of... Not like they, those guys were important, right? Like they did important work and they were cited and everyone talked about them. But at the same time, I feel like the field has gone very much beyond that, especially in the time that like I was in graduate school. But I think part of the issue is that Annabelle says she comes out of a PhD in um, human-computer interaction. And of course, when I'm in grad school, I'm I'm doing this for lit. Um, so I think there might be something happening here where just the... The channels of information that Annabelle is like more likely to like go through, right? Like the 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 way that her research as someone in HCI was going to carry her into game studies was probably going to take her in through um, this selection of writers who are particularly interested in systems thinking um, rather than representation. Mm. And, of course, I'm coming in from a literature department and I'm all about narrative and representation and so on and so forth. Um, And so I can go into game studies and I can see, uh, like, uh, you know, Bogost or Arseth or someone poo-pooing representation and just being like, yeah, well, I don't agree. Um, (laughs) I've got things to do. Sorry, guys. Um, And I think for Annabelle, um, there is a... She, she sees this as, um, you know, something to kind of be done, right? To sort of, like, be like, well, yes, these guys, like, did all their systems thinking, but here's all this other stuff that they're not considering. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why this book feels so strange to me, because it's coming at Game Studies uh, in a completely different way than I did.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I I think that the angle of approach um, probably has something to do with it. And, you know, I, I guess maybe the other side of it, too, is that methodologically, she is interested in using affect as a way of pushing against boundary defining. Mm-hmm. Moments, Right. I mean, it, hearing this introduction, and I don't think we're going to get super deep into it, as I say, 30 minutes into reading the first 10 pages of this book. But um, but she gets kind of into Raymond Williams and talking about culture and the kind of ubiquity of culture and the ubiquity of, of needing to read culture. And it, so so that's to say she's positioning Raymond Williams, this kind of like holistic model, holistic Marxist model of analysis up against strong, systemic, boundary-defining theory. And, you know, when I read that, I'm thinking, well, yeah, but there are a lot of, you know, uh, Mia Consalvo wrote The Magic Circle Doesn't Exist like 12 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, but right, it could just be that these are the thinkers that are surfacing around boundary policing. Mm-hmm. And the thinkers that are doing more representational work or whatever, they're not policing boundaries because that's not what they're all about. So. right. Um, So, yeah, it could be, uh, uh, yeah, uh, like a corpus selection thing. Can can we go back to representation for, like, two seconds really quick? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. The theory of representation that you gave for us there, right, is that there are all of these kind of... um, Flows of things that are happening, right, that then surface to us and become visible in the moment of representation. Um, and so, her attachment to Sylvan Tompkins is based on um, Tompkins's having a fairly delimited number of affects that that he thought that you could have right or that Mm -hmm. he thought you could experience so you have a feeling or or uh i mean yeah you have a feeling you have a sensation and it fits into a basket um and you can analyze the creation and the the movement of those baskets but it's a little bit more defined and it's a little bit more operable um you can talk about the way the scary movie makes you feel scared in tompkins Mm -hmm. um but there, but there's this, and this is kind of you know one of my fundamental disagreements of the way that Affect is positioned in this book is that she positions. Tompkins versus Deleuze and really the way that she's doing this if you look at the citational apparatus is it's really Tompkins versus Aaron Manning and Why am I blanking on his name? He shows up Masumi. in a million times. Masumi, Brian Masumi. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I was getting so excited talking about affect. <laughs> um And and part of her reason for that is that um, Brian Masumi across several books writes about affect as this like kind of half-scientific, he does use a lot of scientific language, half-scientific, half-conceptual, kind of Spinozist, um, idea of flows of potential and intensity that go through everything. Right. So, so when we talk about affect, in the Deleuzian kind of sense, or at least in the Masumi kind of sense, we're talking about energetics that are moving from broad systems to specific systems to um, my brain, into the way that I think about the world. Right? Um, he is collapsing that affectio and affectus distinction in Spinoza down into one kind of very um, effervescent system. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally don't have much interest in in Brian Masumi, um, and it's precisely for these reasons of kind of um, uh, the inability of get to get down to the or the unwillingness. It's not an inability. The unwillingness to get down to a nitty gritty kind kind of move. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what I do think is interesting here is that there, there's something that's going on with the question of representation here. Where representation, as it is talked about in Deleuze, and representation is in the way that it is being talked about by Annabelle, are slightly different things. I think for Annabelle, she is making she is suggesting that representation, when we talk about it in general sense, is both when the image you know comes into being seen, or when the emotion is being felt and kind of cognitivized, mm-hmm. and also it's a question of like almost representation of populations, right? So so she says that the game studies field has a problem uh, with representation. That's, in fact, the quotation. So this is on page XV. That's how far we've made it into this book. Mm-hmm. Um, this is on page XV. She says, game studies has a problem with representation. And the focus on interactivity and in code, we've lost some critical tools for analyzing how video games matter as representations or how, to, how they are bound up in contemporary subjectivities. The fields move away from representation can be understood in, in part as a reaction to the ways representations of violence video games have historically come under attack by politicians and family values watch groups um it is easier to say that video games are not a representational form than to to wade into the thorny issues around media effects um you know i don't know necessarily that i I agree with that read um but but sure okay uh, that i'm willing to accept that Um, But this is later on in the paragraph. We have retreated into computation. This has produced necessary and important work, but it has also left game studies ill-equipped to address issues like racism, homophobia, and misogyny in video games and gaming culture. The computation-slash-representation divide in game studies validates and reinforces these problems. The implicit message of the field is, unless you can ground your analysis of race or gender in code or the interface, you'd best not bring the subjects up okay so that's that's representation of populations right if you if you can't see a person of color on the screen and if game studies can't deal with why are there not people of color on the screen then therefore game studies has failed Mm -hmm. right is that a fair summary yes so so but that concept of representation then gets tied into Deleuzean affect theories um movement away from representation as a metaphysical concept. And these things get, that get linked up together for her in a way that I find kind of interesting. So, this is, this is a quotation from Dorothea Olkowski's book, uh, Gilles Deleuze and the Ruin of Representation. It's it's an older book. It's actually 20 years old this year. But uh, Olkowski is a feminist critic, a feminist kind of media critic and, and philosopher who I think lays out pretty pretty well um, in this like short quotation. What is at stake for representation when it comes to Deleuze, when it comes to affect theory, things like that. So she says, to begin with, there must be a critique of representation defined provisionally as the hierarchical ordering of categories that produces an objectified state of affairs. Further, the task will be to create an image of difference that sweeps away the metaphysics of being and identity and their representation, so as to practically and conceptually acknowledge the stuttering practice of an ontology of becoming. To accomplish this orientation of thought and practice, I'm making use of the philosophical thought of Gilles Deleuze. And so, there's a lot of like Deleuzian buzzwords in there that that I don't think matter very much. But what I do think is helpful is that first sentence, that representation within Deleuze and for Olkowski is the hierarchical ordering of categories that produces an objectified state of affairs. So the minute for when Deleuze or or when Deleuzian theorists are accused or it's said that they move away from representation, it is not that they are moving away from the attempt to see if there are people of color who are represented on the screen. It is that they are looking at the process that legitimates the creation of a world in which people of color do not appear on the screen, and I think that that's an important distinction to be made. Mm-hmm. I just want to flag that here. That, right. Does that make
0: sense, or is it, am I like just like uh, you know fiddling with the knobs here? Well, it makes sense to me, but also like I'm I'm. In, in the same theory mind as you. So I'm trying to think of a good sort of like potted example we can put forth for someone listening to, to get exactly what ex- what we're trying to talk about here. There is a way that Deleuze complicates what is sort of the, uh, how should I put this, like the the hot take style of representational analysis. Mm-hmm. The kind that we're probably most familiar with, right? The ones that are like, oh, how did, how was such and such a thing um, handled on Game of Thrones last weekend, right? Um, this idea of just like, here are these representations, and now we're just going to start analyzing them and figuring out like what they're doing or like what, what do they tell us about, um, this story or this world or our world or what have you. I've lost it. I had it in my head and then I lost it. But do you have the first half of this? <laughs> At least? I do. Okay. Um, and do you agree? Am I am I accurately summarizing, like, what is happening here?
1: Yeah, I think so. Annabelle is... Is suggesting that what happened on Game of Thrones is the full question of representation. But right. the reason that so many feminist delusions appeared—I mean, you've got like Elizabeth Gross, Jane Bennett, Claire Colebrook—all these people in the 1990s and then the early 2000s—the reason those people went to to look at theories that got them away from subjectivity, that got them away from representation, is they wanted to look at the way that the world gets built in such a way that people are like horribly oppressed. And for them that happens at the level that is not just of like interpersonal politics or you looking at an object. It's the the way that visual objects it's the way that people it's a way that our way of life is framed and created what is the process through which that comes into being and there are a lot of different answers for this right that you don't have to go to deleuze for this is a basic tenet of marxism right is a basic Mm -hmm. tenet of ideological critique. But the the move for Deleuze and and for the Deleuzeans was to say, actually, it's not just the material churn of history. It's not just the way that people are able to organize that determines this. It's that there are broader processes that are happening in, say, capitalism that create conditions under which difference can't proliferate, where sameness is reinscribed into people. So people are not just subjects, people are made subject due to an overly oppressive grid of gender or an overly oppressive grid of race. So lots of people in these uh, like representational identity categories that are non-normative or that are um, policed more by the state have found this retreat, quote unquote, from representation to be helpful. I mean, so I, I do have an example in my notes that I think might be helpful. So there's a famous image in in image processing that, that's called uh, Lena. You're familiar with this, maybe? Um, maybe, maybe not. The, the Playboy centerfold from the 1970s. I don't remember which company it is yes okay yeah but but so so they took a Playboy centerfold and they um, used they basically created their image processing software and their algorithm around accurately reproducing this image of a Playboy centerfold and so a lot of people have looked at this as kind of a moment in the history of media and the history of media production in which um, values Right, and, and bad value, sexism, things like that are being implanted into. Um, into the technology itself. And that image is still used as a crucial image for testing is your uh, compression algorithm, is your uh, image, uh, you know, like format changing algorithm, is it good enough? Is it substantial enough? Does it at least meet the bare minimum standard of the field, which is this picture of a woman from Playboy. And so, you know, if, if we're using this as kind of an allegory or whatever for this process, the Deleuzians, right, in the question of representation, They move away from representation because they don't. They're not critical that the image of Lena is of a white woman, which it is. They're critical that the image was being used at all, Um, and they're critical of the process
0: that allowed for that image to happen. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of of the the further processes that the use of that image gestures toward in the future. Exactly.
1: So that's like long. That's a long way of me like making this fine green (coughs) distinction, but 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 I I feel like Deleuzian affect theory gets. it gets mischaracterized in some places here and I don't think mischaracterized out of um, you know, ignorance or out of, of rudeness or something like that. I don't think that's what's going on. It's when we write academic books, you have to defend your position, and you do that by critiquing the other position. I get mm-hmm. it. But on my podcast, I get to <laughs> defend uh d- defend my position to to some degree. And now, after all that's being said, you can still disagree with it, and I think that's perfectly fine to do so. But I did want to make the case here for The retreat from representation is, A, not the normal type of representation that we think of when we say the word representation in day-to-day culture. And uh, I don't know if I said one or if I said A, but B slash two, a lot of people in a lot of different contexts, and especially people who are, as well as people who are um, getting, you know, that are overly policed and oppressed by contemporary capitalism, found Delosian criticism and Deleuzian ethic theory to be liberatory for them and I don't want to pull that out here I don't want that to kind of get buried under the Brian Masumi imprecision mm-hmm. um, that I think does deserve to be rightly critiqued here in this book
0: mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah so that's good yeah so uh, related to that um, and this is just very very shortly after is one other thing that I want to point out that sort of suggests that um, the ways that certain um, strands of thought get uh, condensed in in this in this project, um, in ways that I don't think are necessarily helpful, is very shortly after she she talks about how the. The tendency toward what she, and she specifically calls this new materialism, quote unquote, in, in game studies, is essentially one of the reasons that Gamergate happened. By which she means, so there, there's a couple of things happening here. Um, by laying out the kind of ludology-neratology debate, which is essentially what is happening in some sense, right? She is arguing um, for affect as a way of... Um, not necessarily like bringing narratology or representation over ludology but rather like revealing that uh division is is fundamentally specious. So that's something to keep in mind. Um but um she argues that the the retreat from representation into kind of just uh, abstracted systemsy kind of thinking um that does not privilege questions of of gender and race um and sexuality uh that creates an environment where something like gamergate can happen um which is not in itself untrue i think right i, I think that there is definitely a way that uh, a lot of that systemsy thinking uh or the simulation thinking can um jump over the or like wants to think that it can jump over the the issue of representation and sort of um social justice and so on and so forth and just talk about the, the beautiful lines of code at the same time um when she calls this new materialism this is not a phrase i have ever used to describe this particular form of game studies not once um, new materialism to me is itself feminist, right? New materialism to me means someone like Karen Barad or someone like Jane Bennett. The, the like, new feminist materialism is actually the, the way that I usually hear this phrase. Um, Rosie Braidotti yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, when she says uh, new materialism, she seems, as far as I can tell, to be sort of gesturing toward kind of platform studies and especially like Bogost's object oriented ontology. Like, I think there's an argument to be made here. Right, I do not think the terms that are being put down are the correct terms to make that argument. I do not think that new materialism aligns with GamerGate. I think to materialism, if you look to what other people are calling new materialism, is very much opposed to GamerGate, and GamerGate would be very opposed to new materialism. Yeah, yeah. So this is the this is an XVII. Um... I just want to read the full quote. So yeah, and just for the words- record, oh, I want to tell everyone at home, I, I have a Kindle edition, so I can't give you page numbers. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying really hard. I'm trying to, to figure out where we are,
1: but... Um, yeah. Influenced by new materialism in media studies, game studies has decentered the subject and her relation to images in order to privilege thingness, proceduralism and action as evidenced by the gamergate attacks on women, game designers, players, and critics, such arguments in game studies to actually give validation to those who reject any attempt to see video games as addressing particular subjects or engaging with the politics of representation. Gamers often reject feminist critique on the grounds that games should be evaluated, not as representations, but rather, uh, uh, as playful and apolitical computational systems using theories of affect that are committed to the subjectivizing and collectivizing force of media argue against the possibility of making uh, such a distinction and like I fundamentally agree with with all of that uh, I think if the terminology uh, more reflects what I understand those terms to be exactly um, yeah I agree that that new materialism I don't think is the appropriate word here and, and uh, this is actually helpful here too right where I think When she says the word politics of representation, I think that's a little bit different than representation in a general sense, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, here's my like a, a like thumbs up read of this this paragraph, even if I don't necessarily agree with the terms that are being used here. If that was the case, then I don't think it's the case now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, those three big Rutledge volumes, queerness in games, masculinity in games, feminism in games or in play. I can't remember the exact thing. Those came out last year. Um, I think Shira Chess's work, which the, which gets... Um, uh, those aren't Rutledge, sc- by the way. I believe those are Palgrave. Okay, you know what? Let me... Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's Palgrave. <laughs> yep. But uh, but yeah, so those three volumes, uh, Adrian Shaw's work, of course, Bo Ruberg's work. Um, I think that the field... If this is the position of the field for the past 10 years, if we accept that, which, as I said earlier, I don't necessarily know that I agree with that to begin with. But even if this is true, then I think the field has changed or the production of the field, the kind of intellectual production of the field, has changed enough in the past two, three, four years that this is something that hopefully, even in the classroom, starts to recede into, you know, over the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, even if the, the, the bad picture that is painted here or, you know, the negative picture that's painted here, even if that is true, which I don't necessarily agree with, if it's true, I think it is rapidly changing. And I think that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Well, shall we begin chapter one? Yeah, so we've made it to <laughs> page XP. I, I, the, the thing that, that, I, just one last thing uh, that I want to talk about for 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chapter. No, not really. But the, 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 l- it's in the last paragraph um, that I think is, is interesting. Um, she says uh, it's the first sentence of the last paragraph on XXI. Two of the primary claims I make in this book are that bodies are not machines and that affect is not virtual. This is not restating of liberal humanism in the face of post-humanist thought. It is more about the peculiar discursive erasures that occur when our machine metaphors collapse and become fact. And this is something I didn't quite pick up here when I was... I only figured this out at the end, so it might be good to, to flag here. Part of this book is about the claims that affect theory make to transcending language. Basically, we have this this idea, there's a kind of history of philosophy of the 20th century idea, that uh, with the creation of structuralism, or, or the kind of founding moment of, of structuralism around, in the early 20th century, around people like Claude Levi-Strauss, that created something, and this is, of course, all in the rearview mirror, but now we refer to that as the linguistic turn, basically. Um, that eventually comes into into uh, someone like Jacques Derrida, who's deeply, deeply interested in language um, and trying to work through the assumptions of structuralism. Um, people who are working through those assumptions are like Derrida, creating things like uh, deconstruction or Foucault, who you know becomes part of a, the cohort of post-structuralists, Deleuze, Lyotard, people like that. Um, But that's all to say that in the middle of the 20th century we had something called the linguistic turn and then around the 1980s somewhere 1970s 1980s um, that eventually switched over into other stuff Um, and generally the way that affect gets talked about historically is that there was the time before the affective turn and there's the time you know after which we are living in the affective turn. Mm -hmm. That's all to say that theory Capital T Theory in the in the 90s began to be very, very suspicious of language and the idea that language was sufficient to talk about the problems of the world and, in fact, that everything is caught up in a regime of language. This is something that's very important to structuralism. This is something that's very important to deconstruction. Um, People began to side-eye that a little bit. And so what's Mm -hmm. happening here, right, is that she is saying, hold on now. That big capital T theory moment might have been jumping the gun because, in fact, language does matter a lot. And language matters matters because we have to write and speak about the world through language. Mm -hmm. So I just want to flag that here for when we get to it a little bit later. But but that's actually much more important in the book than I thought it was going to be. Uh, when I got to the end of the introduction. All right. Chapter one.
0: Sorry chapter to, one. to sideline this for yeah, that's four fine. solid minutes. <laughs> we'll look forward to, to, to the payoff uh, for mm-hmm. that as we move into chapter one, Feeling History, which is about, um, well, it's about caves. It is. It's about a lot of caves. Mm-hmm. Um, it begins with uh, the history of um, Colossal Cave Adventure, um, the text-based computer game, and how the um, guy who created that—what uh, was his name? William Crowther. William Crowther. Yeah. Right. He was a computer gram- computer programmer and a caver, um, and his wife uh, was also a computer programmer and a caver. Her name was uh, Oh, Patricia. gosh Patricia. Yes, Patricia Crowther. Um, and in what what year was this? 1972. Uh, she, I'm just going to quote from this news article in the New York Times, spent 16 hours often in water up to uh, their necks. It was her in um, another... Uh, collection of spelunkers, worming seven miles underground to locate the long suspected connection between the Mammoth Cave and the Flint Ridge Cave systems. Ms. Patricia Crowther of Arlington, Massachusetts, a 29 year old computer programmer who is the mother of two daughters, told in an interview of being soaked to the skin, caked with mud, quote unquote, like chocolate frosting, and almost exhausted when the party inched through Hansen's Lost River and into the Mammoth Cave complex last September 9th. Um so the fun the fun story here i guess uh fun is in scare quotes about colossal cave adventure is william crowther made this game to connect with his two daughters after he and his wife divorced yeah um so uh what is interesting about uh this particular thing for for Annabelle? and there's actually a lot that's interesting about this for her um but sort of one of the first things to note right is that uh this game this very important text adventure game um gets created out of kind of an emotional desire right out of this very deeply emotional context of a relationship mm-hmm. of a divorce and then of the desire to continue to communicate with one's children um and so she sort of begins by outlining this kind of anecdotal um sort of moment from games history and then asking what happens to games history if we start looking for the affective uh, sort of charges and attractors that are, are pushing people in, in making games or thinking about games yeah, and and so the,
1: yeah, this anecdote is built, uh, or this kind of theorization here is built off of Lane Nooney's piece. Um, I've got it here in front of me: a pedestal, a table, a love letter, where where Lane went back and and did all of this kind of historical research i really 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 strongly encourage everyone to go read that article it's fairly short uh lane nooney is an excellent writer and i I should say i've i've been on a couple panels with lane nooney um despite our work not being similar in any way um (laughs) uh you you know uh, she's writing a book on sierra online um and it's uh like some truly amazing work so um i encourage people to check it out but but the the couple pages in this book are just like the surface of like how bizarre the the kind of affective relationships are um that that nuni outlines in that article so so please go check that out
0: yeah she she uses this uh she uses nuni particularly to establish this methodology which is the idea of uh doing games history as spelunking rather than um I guess, sort of writing writing a te- teleological history or, like, writing writing a narrative. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Like, rather than writing, like, this is the history of game studies. Here is how these games came to be. Um, Annabelle is advocating spelunking in the sense that uh, if we sort of drill down into history... Um, we can find these weird pockets of affect and, uh, sort of, you know, one of the, one of the upshots of this, um, and this comes up in this book a couple, a couple of times, right, is that we, we find a place for like women to reenter history and especially sort of like scenes of domesticity that have been historically kind of, uh, rendered as not terribly important to, to whatever the March of History is, um. You know, we, we get to see things like people interacting with their children or like, you know, the near the end of this book, she talks about how the first sort of text adventure game um, is about exploring a house. Yeah. Right. Uh, Mystery house. From yes. Ken and Roberta Williams. Yes yes roberta williams's mystery house um so like just and just exploring a house right which is where roberta williams was sitting when she wrote like started making her notes when she got the idea to make this game
1: yeah and there's another uh there's another lane newney article and she might be citing it here i didn't i didn't check the the footnote but um orlane laying dug into that and kind of figured out that the 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 visualization or the spatial construction of Mystery House was done all on paper and kind of spread out the Williams' house as Roberta Williams was doing that. And then Ken Williams just kind of like figured out how to implement that. But all of the conceptual work was being done by this very, uh, you know, spatialized at-home work of women that, you know, is kind of, has historically been like, annihilated from the register so mm-hmm. it's another great moment to, to kind of pull out to talk about that kind of stuff
0: right um and then in terms of of act, like games that are being studied in this chapter aside from colossal cave adventure um Annabelle is particularly interested in kentucky route zero by cardboard computer uh and uh because uh, if you've played kentucky route zero you know that colossal cave adventure is actually a huge influence on on that game um and there's a is it it's the third is it the third or fourth act? I think it's the fourth act where you are running around the caves. Is that right? Mm,
1: Do you remember? I have not. I, I played the first couple and then stopped and have been waiting on it to
0: to finish to out. To finish. So. Okay. Well, yeah. there's a bit in Kentucky Route Zero, and it, I think it actually might be the third act where uh, you go into a cave. Um, this massive sprawling cave system that is the Mammoth Cave System in Kentucky because Kentucky Route Zero is this sort of like weird magic realism highly mythologized version of of Americana Um, and there's this massive supercomputer that runs off of like special cave fungus that uh, it's called Xanadu um, and it has a text adventure on it Um, and she sort of uses this moment Annabelle does to uh sort of link this history of colossal cave adventure with kentucky route zero and then digs down into kentucky route zero to look at the way that it um is very sort of clearly aware of and nostalgic for older types of technology and older types of media um so things like you know crt monitors uh video cassettes um Tabletop gaming rather than video gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, uh, one of the things that uh, comes out in kind of this reading of Kentucky Route Zero. Is, well, and this is the way she puts it, right? The cave in Kentucky Route Zero, this is a quote. Unfortunately, I can't give you a page number. The cave in Kentucky Route Zero functions as a spatial and temporal metaphor for the game's creative reimagining of what lies, quote unquote, beneath video games, their code and programming, or in their past, um, alternative and overlooked devices and approaches to virtual world making. Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> I was looking for the page number while you were talking.
0: So, um, what needs to be pointed out here, right, is this this tension between surface and depth, which is going to come up again and again, because this is another way of approaching that issue of um, representation versus simulation, I guess, if we want to call it that, um, representation versus system representation, ludology versus narratology, um, because uh, essentially, right, like she is arguing that uh, this. I actually don't know what she's arguing. I'm going to be honest.
1: I, so, okay. This is something I think that comes out not in this chapter. I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, the In the next chapter, I believe. Oh, no, no, no. It, it is. It is here. So this is on page eight, and I think that this unlocks a whole lot of the book. In the same way that, that like the kind of um, distinction between the linguistic and the non-linguistic mm-hmm. um, that I was just talking about, or talking about a minute ago, um, this is on page eight. She says that, that the, the way that game studies currently works, and this is how she gets her way into Kentucky Route Zero, right? Mm-hmm. She says that, that game studies and kind of media studies around effect works this way, that there's a formulation in which, quote, computation or code is the pre-symbolic, the sensation and the unconscious, and representation is the symbolic, the cognitive and the interpretive. And she says this is like the fundamental problem, right? That we mm-hmm. think that there's a dual layer of depth and surface when in fact there is just surface, right? There, There mm-hmm. is... Um, if if your body is you know if the skin is the largest organ the skin that's that's like that's like oddly ominous if the skin is the largest organ mm-hmm. um, but if skin is your largest or you know this massive organ for dealing with sensation on the inside and the out it doesn't make a lot of sense as far as uh, animals is concerned right to say that there is an interior to the state and an exterior right it's all flatness it's all sensation that's coming in from the outside that's been interpreted in different kinds of ways. Um, and she says like what what her method buys or what what her mode of, of of affect helps us get at is the the idea that everything is the touch of surfaces that there's not the play of depth When you are interacting with Kentucky Route Zero, you are interacting with the code in some fundamental level, but you are also interacting with aesthetics and representation at the same time, right? Right. When you're playing, there's not a distinction between the, uh, I don't know, the values that are changing as you move through dialogue options and you reading that dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm. Like if if you draw that line right to say we should only talk about the uh, conversation counter that's going up right, which would be kind of a character caricature of platform studies, but would be a way I think that platform studies might approach that uh, sometimes. um, That fundamentally means that we're not talking about the reality of the way that we are experiencing that. Mm -hmm. I think that's right i think that all affect studies get to that i don't i don't know that um i don't know that you know i i don't know that when various forms of affect studies are talking about affect in its impersonal form you know this kind of energetics that that moves through everything in the universe i don't think that it's saying that there is depth i think they're saying there are different ways that surface functions um you know the the other half of Deleuzian kind of thinking, right? And this is coming from Spinoza as well, is that everything is imminent to everything else, meaning that everything is touching or in conversation with the the various different things that they are they are interfacing with. Mm-hmm. And so i I think that. You know, if you read something like Krimen's uh, book, Dolos and Guattari and video games, um, which is kind of like a shorter book, but it's largely making the same argument, but but through that pathway. And if you read my master's thesis, where I do a very similar thing in order to argue that video games are in fact a form of life, um, in which human beings are in organ, I'm making a very similar argument as well. I think you can read Shira Chess in her kind of Foucaultian interpretation in um, Ready Player Two, and I think you can land in a very similar kind of spot. She's not doing the Deleuzean affect thing, but it's a similar mode of argument because Foucault and Deleuze are, are arguing in some places very similar uh, points. So that's all to say. I'm, I'm working my lever in here again, but I think that that's the question of surface and depth here is that, you know... The, the Kentucky Route Zero metaphorizes the relationship between code and, and the person and aesthetics in the person? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be helpful to invert it, right? I mean, when when you're playing a video game, is your heart playing the video game? <laughs> And, like, I would argue, yeah. But, yeah. you know, right? Your heart rate is increasing. Um, you know, you're playing a scary... I'm playing Resident Evil 7. I get scared. My heart rate goes way up. I feel like I'm having a panic attack. Um, my heart is playing that video game. It's mm-hmm. just not through a direct mode of, of contact, right? Right. Um, in the same way that if I'm watching you, Michael, play a video game, and you're, you've you got the control in your hand, and I'm yelling at you to hit the shoot button or whatever, I'm playing that video game. I'm just playing it in a very indirect kind of way. Right. So, yes. I like this reading of Kentucky Route Zero, even though that I'm, I'm not wholly familiar with the examples being used, uh, yeah. just because I'm, you know, I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Come on, cardboard computer.
0: Right. No, that's actually one of my biggest things about Kentucky Route Zero is that, like, until it ends, I, I actually don't know what it's after. <laughs> Yeah, like I know, yeah. I know the things that it's concerned with right now, but I don't know it's ne- necessarily its opinion on them. So the other thing that I think is
1: interesting in this chapter is this long discussion of the cybernetic fold. Mm-hmm. H- had you encountered this argument before? Uh,
0: like the the cybernetic fold itself?
1: Yeah, just like this idea from uh, Sedgwick and
0: Frank. Uh, yeah, not in terrible depth, but it came up very briefly in like a an in a 19th century, like novel class that I took in grad school, because of course Sedgwick, um, was, is big in, in 19th century studies. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's,
1: that's very interesting.
0: Um, it's interesting that she's big in 19th century studies. No, 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 not that, but
1: that, that like the, because I get how the idea of like, um, linguistic in framings, right. Would, would obviously like jump from one to the other. Um, mm-hmm. I just hadn't thought about that before. But, yeah, the, the argument being made here, and this is on, like, it starts on page 17 for those who are following at home. Um, and the idea behind this is that in the post-war period, so post-1945, cybernetics and um, systems theory—it's really systems theory—blows um, mm-hmm. up. I mean, it becomes huge because uh, after 1945, there's a massive investment in um the military industrial complex right so stanford mit these these major technology campuses they get a lot of private industry money that comes in that's either backed by the government or the private industry has money because they have government contracts and the idea is to to invent computation basically And, and um so this is where we get the invention of the computer for for all intents and purposes um and the invention of the video game. So she points out uh, Higginbotham's Tennis for Two comes out of this scenario and Space War also um, comes out of it at different places, of course. Um, but there's this massive kind of funding push. But at the same time, there is the emergence of a way of talking and thinking about the world, right? The cybernetics systems theory that
0: comes to kind of override or overdetermine mm-hmm. a lot of other things. Right, um, and so I think it might be helpful if you unpacked like what the fold meant, right? Like because fold is a word that is getting used here, but it's not necessarily clear what that means. What is being folded onto what?
1: Everything, <laughs> I think. Right. I mean, without having read the Tompkins and Frank piece, I you know I I can <laughs> only report what is here, right? But the idea is that cybernetics emerges and comes to envelop. Um, It's way of thinking about the world, right, mm-hmm. of humans and objects and the, the interrelations that happen between the two. So kind of Norbert Weiner kind of stuff mm-hmm. that that emerges and kind of lays itself both as a practical layer. You know, uh, we get video games and we start to play video games and we start to think of um, the relationship between um Wait, is this the chapter where she talks about fail memes? It's not that's no, later no, on no, no, that's later but, but but that's a so that's in chapter four but that's a good kind of example of this of <clears throat> a phenomenon emerges the idea of failing in a video game and we begin to interpret the rest of our life around that. So we say things like epic fail um, <laughs> which references you know comes to be used in a context which has nothing to do with the original one and she says that that cybernetics, Um, and systems theory as ways of dealing with the world, of thinking of humans and machines and the relationship between the human and the machine, and is a human a machine? These are all kind of fundamental questions for, um, for, for early systems theory. When those things emerge, they put themselves, they place themselves as a way of thinking about the world like this thin buttery layer on top of our language and so mm-hmm. we then begin to say and this is something that i have encountered in uh in a real social situation mm-hmm. it's important this happened to me a few years ago someone shook my hand and said that was really great to meet you i hope to interface with you again and that's the cybernetic fault right yeah. <laughs> it's the idea that human beings are not meeting they are not talking they are not communicating, whatever. Um, The metaphor of the machine, this thought experiment or this way of producing concepts in order to create new technologies, frames our entire world existence. The linguistic metaphors, they stop being metaphors. They start being just the way that society operates. This is very similar. I think it's Frederick Jameson who says um, capitalism is its own metaphysics. Mm-hmm. M- meaning that it sets up conditions under which only capitalism can exist. Um, this is a very similar kind of argument, but on the level of language rather than, say, material production or whatever.
0: <laughs> right. Um, right. The, the, the other way of thinking about it, of like what's being folded here, then is that, and this is a thing that recurs in history, in in media studies and media archaeology, especially, um, is that a new medium will emerge. Um, so, for instance, uh, like recorded sound. Um, and suddenly that uh, sort of technology will, will fold back into discourse in a way that we suddenly start thinking our bodies work that way. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the other way of, of, of understanding this. So uh, when, um, you know, recorded sound gets invented um, in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, suddenly the brain becomes conceptualized as a wax record. Right. Like that can be um, f- like imprinted with things in the ways that uh, an actual like physical wax record would be imprinted. So mm-hmm. the cybernetic fold is this moment in sort of the mid-century Anglosphere, right? The post-war Anglosphere where uh, the groundwork is being laid for the, the massive computational apparatus that is influencing our lives right now. Um, but the computers themselves are not quite there. And nevertheless, like the ways that we are starting to understand computers in this moment, uh, become operative metaphors for how we understand our bodies. So um, that is that is part of what the cybernetic fold is here. But uh, also, it is interesting because it thwarts that that surface depth model that uh, Annable is kind of taking. Issue with because in a fold you have two surfaces that are brought into contact rather than um, something that is below something else in in a kind of a hierarchical sense so I think that's one of the reasons why this shows up um, and then yeah see and then we kind of end with sort of just that discussion of the cybernetic fold in this chapter is that right
1: yeah um, and kind of here in the middle too there is a. Explain if if we already have a pretty good picture in this book in the first twenty pages or so. Again, we are at page nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if we get a good picture of you know what affect is and what Annibal is not doing, um, then I think this is around eighteen nineteen is when we get an idea of what Annibal is after, and this is when we kind of get uh, a sketch of Sylvan Tompkins that kind of repeatedly comes back up. You know, I I, uh, um, I, I think this book is really well written in the sense of what matters about. Tompkins shows up when it matters. You know, we don't get this big theory down. but this is on 18. She writes the um, through cybernetics. Tompkins sought to describe the significant role that the affects play alongside cognition within the larger system of communication involving the skin, musculoskeletal, glandular and neurological systems and social context. The affects, which he grouped and listed as interest, excitement, enjoyment, joy, surprise, startle, distress, anguish, anger, rage, and fear, terror, are what Tompkins called mattering mechanisms that imbue sensory and environmental information with a tone or emotional texture that conveys to the cognitive system how to sort and process that information. So <laughs> so for Tompkins, the affects are less an impersonal force and they are more a, you know, like a tool that the human has in <laughs> order to deal with the world around it. Um, and this is on 19... Uh, she writes, Our affective scripts, the feelings that arise for us around particular scenarios, how we experience those feelings and how we communicate them, are not purely biological givens. Rather, they are part of an ongoing process of communication and interconnectedness with our environment. The affects in Tompkins' model communicate simultaneously inwardly and outwardly, both intra and interpersonally. Affect for Tompkins is bound up in orientation. Mm-hmm. You're oriented toward the world in particular kinds of ways. And these kind of these affects are, you know, uh, almost like screens or something like that that capture particular sensations and then, um, you know, kind of uh, infuse the body with them and infuse the mind with them. And so there's no depth or surface distinction because this is all kind of at the level of the holistic body and the holistic world around it. Right. Right. again, like I, I just, I, I got to work at this in every time I can. Again, I don't see this as being significantly different from traditional main lies and Deleuzean affect studies. Mm-hmm. I will grant that this is pretty significantly different from the picture that, um, Masumi, I don't know. I can't, I keep going Aaron Manning, but it's not Aaron Manning. <laughs> it's Brian Masumi. This is different from the picture that Brian Masumi paints. Um, and it's because he is so invested in the capability of affect and, and that impersonal nature rather than the way it hits the body. But if you read, you know, Deleuze's book on Spinoza or or the bigger of the two books that he wrote on Spinoza, or if you read uh, his book on Francis Bacon, it's pretty clear that for Deleuze, this is, in fact, how affect works. It is a mechanism that is at the edge of the constructed body of the human, the body envelope, basically, that almost operates like a valve that lets certain things in and then lets certain things out and then doesn't, you know, let other things in and out. (laughs) you know, if someone wants to have a long email conversation about this, I'm happy to do that. And this will be one of the last times I'm working this in, <laughs> but, but, but crucially, right. You know, talking about the cybernetic fold again, it seems like her big criticism of Masumi here. Um, and, and through the rest of the book is that Tompkins comes in, you know, does his theorization of the affects within the cybernetic fold. And that is important because he is making this larger connection to this broader set of theories. Mm hmm he doesn't pretend that he can get out of that in some way. You know what I mean? Like, like these things are self same for him. They are imminent to one another. The, the way we conceive of the body and the way that we think cybernetically about relationships are the same thing for Tompkins. It seems that Annabelle, uh, is really unhappy with Masumi for using the language of technology and using the language of cybernetics and using the language of science while continually disavowing that affect is bound up in these systems and in the the very I, I don't know the mode of life that we have after cybernetics. Mm-hmm. I think she thinks that Masumi's like not serious enough or doesn't think hard enough about his method.
0: Well, and like this this ties into um, actually might be my favorite particular point made in this chapter, um, which is a little bit of a backup, but actually it will lead us very nicely into the next chapter, so we can move on. Uh, is her essential, her, her claim that um, video games come about, and this is, the narrative she's spinning here is obviously sort of going against, uh, like, Games of Empire, um, for instance, because she, she sort of takes issue with the idea that games were sort of these weird, subversive things made by uh, these debonair programmer hackers on on their spare time while they were toiling away for for the superpowers. Um, because that's the way that story normally gets told Um, Mm -hmm. rather she argues that tennis for two and space work come about because they were intended to be public facing Um, they were ways like video games essentially she says uh, come to exist because people lay people need computers to be effectively legible in ways that they were not prior to sort of the the moment the the moment tennis for two came to exist right um that is if you were not a person who knew a lot of things about computers um you would look at a computer screen and you would have no idea what was going on and what video games do um is they take this technology and they use it to make something that is effectively legible to someone who does not necessarily know how a computer works yeah right um and so that is that is a really interesting uh, point. That I think that um, carries a lot into the next chapter. If you're ready to move on, otherwise,
1: yeah, I, okay. I, yeah. The only additional thing I want to say is that that it's not just too that that Tompkins like fulfills the mission. Or it's it is not that Tompkins fulfills the mission of cybernetics, right? I don't, I don't want to misconstrue, or I don't want to. Uh, misrepresent what's happening in the chapter. The the kind of interesting thing that that Annable uh, gets to here in this chapter is that Tompkins provided a more holistic model that was not the human as a machine, but mm-hmm. rather that the human is immensely complicated. And if we thought of machines more like humans rather than as humans as more delimited styles of machine, that that might have created a different type of cybernetics. Mm-hmm. We might think of players differently. If computer culture had mimicked Tompkins more than it had, say, like B.F. Skinner. Right. Loot boxes would look very different (laughs) if Sylvan Tompkins was the psychologist we went to for those.
0: I mean, loot boxes would just be like downloadable romance routes, right? Like that's...
1: (laughs) Oh, dang, dang. Yes, that would be very good.
0: Like, actually, that's... Like, that's the most cynical way of reading it, right? But, like, that is that is the alternate history if we're going to assume that the world... Like, the, this alternate future is just as bad as the current present, but, like, <laughs> yeah. took the alt, took a different route, is that loot boxes would not just be, like, cool things you get in the game, but would be like, oh, no, I opened this loot box and, and now my crush hates me. <laughs> oh, dang, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, now I can kiss a zombie. Right, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So anyhow yeah this brings us into the the second chapter which is called touching games and the reason uh, i wanted to bring up the point about video games kind of coming to exist because they made computers legible is because we we all just about now carry little computers with us um who are that are very very legible because they have touch screens right and there's there's the whole sort of um uh i don't know how to how to describe this but like the I want to say cult, but it's not even really a cult because it sounds like what they're saying is basically true, which is that, like, touchscreens are weirdly intuitive.
1: Yeah. um, She uses the exact language for it, but it's um, uh, not natural gesture, but something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is, why, for instance, where where her um, HCI background comes through really clearly, Uh, thinking about, uh, you know, the fact that when we are touching a it when i am touching my phone screen um like i am not just like i am not touching an inert object right i am touching the code that that object is running i am i am telling it to do things and it is giving me information in return and she sort of does this nice thing where she talks about how you know a a touchscreen is not just it's not just a sheet of glass right it's it's these it is like the human skin um all of these layers of, of particular things that serve particular functions within the whole that to us from our end looks just like, you know, your skin or the computer screen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She, she this is on page 40. She writes, uh, this chapter is about how video games might put us into contact with the sensual properties of code. And also about that, which gets figured as matter available to touch and what is figured as immaterial and out of reach. So this is another way of of positioning that surface and depth question, right? Like you know, as you're saying, this mode of touch is two surfaces hitting one another, Um, but normally we don't talk about that way, right? Normally we say like you know, you're hitting the button, but in our discourse, we know that you know, maybe in the back of our mind we know that what's really happening is like lines of code are being manipulated based on how long you are holding the, the tap or if you're swiping while holding down or if you've tapped one time, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as you're saying, right, you're touching the code to some degree. You're the electricity that is um, g- moving from your fingertip through the interface down into the operability of, of the code layer you're directly manipulating this processor, you know, um, through a couple layers of, of mediation. Um, and so she's still trying to get us away from the idea that that code might be immaterial or inaccessible in some way is in fact directly accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, which I, which I find very interesting.
0: So this is, I don't know what page this is and you didn't put it in your notes, I think. So this is what I take away as the big claim in this chapter, the rendering of the screen as a surface, Um, expression of a deeper structure does not actually offer a new theoretical tool for new media rather it adapts the ideological blindness uh, blindness of a previous era's surface depth models of consciousness to computational media Mmm. That's good. I don't know where that is, but that's in here. Yeah. Um, it's probably around the 40s or 50s, I would say, the late 40s or 50s, because this is around the area um, where she starts talking about Galloway, who was our last episode. And it might, yeah. be, it might be illustrative to dig into exactly what her issue with Galloway is.
1: Yeah, so this is the Galloway stuff. So, so basically just to give people a sketch here. So she works through haptics first. So like mm-hmm. Laura Marks and haptic visuality and then talks about these actual uh, interfaces and how they work. Um and then um, talks about like HCI human computer interaction stuff and then works through uh, something I think which is really interesting which is game feel um, and mm-hmm. Steve Swink and game feel and how it kind of um, bypasses a lot of the representational or surface level quote unquote surf, surface level uh, content of these games but yeah talks about Merrick K's um, Empathy Machine mm-hmm. this game Michael you've you've played this game
0: um, yeah, like, <laughs> not recently, but my God, was this a blast from the very recent past, actually. Um, mm-hmm. when, when was Empathy Machine? Was that... It was during the big uh, twine. March 2014, I'm getting from uh, some random, like, weird scraper from an a interactive fiction database that I just pulled up. Well, there you go. <laughs> and, and now we know. So, yeah,
1: so 2014... Yeah. Um, and uh, it gets kind of remarked upon in the book because it, it's a, a game that explicitly is dealing with the relationship between the self, the kind of reflective self and the hand and the screen. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, then gets into the Galloway, like you're saying. So this is actually on 48, uh, 48, 49, 50, somewhere there for, for people who are um, playing along at home. And this is when, in the introduction, when I was talking about the kind of cohort, of thinkers that are that are being used um, in order to position what game studies does this is where i kind of drew that list from um, because this is here like Arseth, Galloway uh Bogost Myra and then Sakart comes a little bit later here but but this is the the i think the big pillar of the book that deals most directly like what are the formal exclusions that are being made by game studies mm mm-hmm. mhm um, and so, so uh, yeah, Alexander Galloway here. It, the, the, the piece that she um, quotes is our piece that, that at least I was deeply confused about. Uh, <laughs> uh, she says, the turn, away is on 49. the turn away from the visual and game studies is often premised on the idea that, as computational media, video games are different from so-called optical media, such as photography and film, and so require a different analytical starting place. In gaming, Alexander Galloway writes, If photographs are images, and films are moving images, then video games are actions. Let this be word one for video game theory. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, next sentence. Galloway argues that games are essentially about doing, and as such are intrinsically different from image or text-based culture. Mm-hmm. As I said last
0: time, I am still deeply confused by what that actually means. But Well so is animal really i mean not really confused she's just like well that's not true <laughs> yeah <but> she, yeah <laughs> like, that's uh, yeah ambivalent about the the accuracy of the claim maybe yeah um. Um, well it's like so i think it's also worth pointing out that this this thing about galloway comes after uh her talking about espen arseth like literally just the, the previous paragraph um because what arseth says uh And this is, so, uh, I don't, which which book is this? Where is, what is she quoting here? Okay, so that this is uh, his essay genre trouble, Narrativism in the Art of Simulation. Um, So he is talking about, Arseth is saying, uh, the dimensions of Laura Croft's body, and I'm quoting him here, Mm -hmm. um, are irrelevant to me as a player. Um, And this is him, of course, talking about Tomb Raider. When I play... And uh, I believe these italics are... Oh, no, 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 no. She added this these these italics. I don't even see her body, but see through it and past it. In Arseth's formulation, and this is Annable again, the video game screen and its images are something that the player must look through and beyond in order to access what the game is really about, the successful manipulation of algorithms to win. Um, so, yeah, it's the same sort of... Uh, thing that we've seen recurring this idea that uh there's a cohort of scholars who are approaching um games not as kind of like surface level things but as mechanisms to be interacted with um in a very like limited sense and also i think that arsef um like I'm willing to to like slightly be charitable in what Arseth is after when he's talking about uh, Lara Croft, but also like I know precisely why Annabelle chose that pull quote because the idea that uh, you can just see through Lara Croft's body and uh, really it's the system that you're doing uh, the the heavy work with in the video game um, does miss the fact that like a large part of the Tomb Raider series is Lara Croft's body. In the way that Ye- is represented and seen and thought about.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to be less charitable. Arseth is just wrong. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. this may be the way that Espen Arseth plays games or played games 15 years ago when this came out. Um, but take a cursory look at any comment thread. Check out in the, the Twitter, um, you know, responses to any announcement video um, or trailer. This is not how people play video games at all. Yeah, um, no, it's not people have strong identifications with bodies or disidentifications with bodies. Um, Laura Croft's body is historically hyper sexualized. I mean, you know, one of our good, you know, fun video game anecdotes is the idea that her breasts were off by, uh, like a value of 10, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were comically large and they just left them in, which is not to, to say anything one way or the other about large breasts, but rather that that's the uh, the history of games is thinking about the body um, and thinking about the the size of Lara Croft's breasts. I mean, good God, she was in maybe not Playboy, but in, in Maxim, maybe something, yeah, like, something that. like that, Yeah, something like that. Um, and so the idea that a number one, the idea that video games are just like the moment of play seems to me to to be historically inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, that's just not what's happening right now. And that was not what was happening when the original, you know, initially Tomb Raider comes out either. So yeah, I think this is a good pull quote to 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 come out. Um, and the the imprecision i know i've been using that word a, a lot but the imprecision of saying games are played one way um and that that one can just uh seamlessly inhabit a body um doesn't seem to like actually reflect how people play or talk about or experience games in any way i'm sure espinarsis will be fine
0: <laughs> He'll he'll be okay i think he'll be okay so, the games that are the subject of the close readings here are, are Merrick Kay's uh, Empathy Machine uh, and then Anna Anthropy's Dysphoria, um, which Annabelle argues are uh, both about sort of the um, processes of inscription that happen in games right like that uh the 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 specific phrase she says they they make us aware of the complicated imbrication of our bodies and our devices um so just as an example uh in in merit's empathy machine um it's a twine game and like most twine games it's just some text and it's kind of this person it's a speaker talking to you saying like oh i've made this empathy machine um that will help you experience like have you ever wondered what it would be like to um experience a different gender right to uh, the, the experience of being a different gender um and uh you at a certain point the the twine game asks you to put your hand on the screen and then you know it's like okay like starting up the empathy machine now and of course this is 2014 and uh mobile stuff had not quite taken off in the way it is. So this was originally, I think probably expected to be played on a a desktop computer or laptop computer. So the screen would not be responsive in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, Nevertheless, the game asks you to place your hand to the screen and then it's like, you know, I've booted up the empathy machine and then it asks you like, well, did you feel it? And you could say yes or no. And, um, that results into kind it becomes a kind of uh it takes the form, and actually Merritt's early twine works, um I think did this a lot, they take the form of this kind of interactive or like semi-interactive dialogue with a kind of depersonalized speaker, in this case, the 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 speaker of the game, which eventually says, like, well, I didn't expect that to work, but if you say yes, like I did I did feel empathy. Mm -hmm. Um I didn't expect that to work, but that's great. But also, you know, how do we know if it was the right empathy? so anyway right like what is interesting about this particular game um, for Annibal is the way that it is asking us to pay attention to the screen and touch the screen and feel the screen um and then sort of interrogate the relationship between like the ability to touch the screen and what we feel um or what we think we feel and what that means uh and then the entire chapter ends with this gigantic own of black mirror <laughs> Well, it's a, it's like a, a like a
1: a very good double gigantic own that's that's happening in uh, in the chapter, right? Yeah. Um, the thing I want to flag in, in the middle before
0: before that, um, and there's also like a long reading of sword and sorcery too. Oh yeah, oh, I forgot is, about that one. I for some reason I didn't put that one in my notes.
1: Yeah, I, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. And then there's Karen Barad who who shows up briefly, um, a new materialist you know, earlier I was talking about the linguistic and the affective turn and things like that. So that shows up. Um, th- there is a piece that she is citing that's Ruth lays critiquing Misumi. Um, and, Lay's is making kind of the, the core of the argument that, that animal is also saying here. So this is a quotation from Lay's on page 54. The whole point of the turn to affect by Masumi and like-minded cultural critics is thus to shift attention away from considerations of meaning or ideology or indeed representation to the subject's subpersonal, material affective responses where it is claimed political and other influences do their real work. The disconnect between ideology and affect produces one of its consequences, a relative indifference to the role of ideas and beliefs in politics, culture, and art, in favor of an ontological concern with different uh, people's corporeal affective reactions. Um, And so I – and she uses this to – she unites the two discourses here. She says that game studies is – Focus on depth, right, rather than that that surface. You know, talking about where action happens, or talking about seeing the world through Lara Croft. That that focus on the inside rather than the the surface itself. this the fact that Lara Croft is who Lara Croft is, and and moves in a particular way through our culture. That she says that is replicated in the stance of Masumi and Deleuzean style affect theory. Um, and I'll be honest, right, you can read Masumi's, I, I think a particular problem text for this is that Masumi in his uh, book, *Simblance and Event, the final chapter of that, has a book on, poli- or it's a chapter on politics. Like, what are, what are the political implications of, of this theory? And I'll be honest with you, they are not, they are not useful um, they might they are interesting they are intellectually interesting but they are not things that you can go out in the world and do uh, it, it's almost like Masumi is saying like well sometimes politics happens and that's interesting isn't it um, but you know in reality we have to take hold of the FX I mean it's this kind of generalized um Theory, but but on 55, she says, uh, game studies and Deleuzian affect theory t- share a turn away from the visible that is premised on the proposal that new social and technological conditions require the abandonment of theory structuralist hangover and the adoption counterintuitively of the surface depth distinctions that precede structuralism and reinforce its blind spots. Bodies, all the ways their surfaces continually signify, and the ways they are mediated through representations are rendered by these discourses as merely surface effects. So she's basically saying that, you know, the way that Laura Croft is represented or thought of in our culture, if we take this the, her picture of game studies and, and uh, Masumian-style affect studies seriously, that those are just, like, symptoms of a deeper cause that we have to get a handle on. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting about this is that you know this is a this is a branch of queer game studies too right who say this that that queerness can happen at the level of code rather than at the level of say representation and this is a fundamental claim that gets made in africana or african american or black studies um you know fred moten makes these kinds of claims right that obviously there's a representational element but what needs to be thoroughly interrogated and thought through are the systems of um, say philosophical interpretation that get us to the point where we can only understand blackness as something to be excluded mm-hmm. for example um, so so it's, it, it's strange to me what kind of things get kind of um, thrown out at the same time that we have to do it but also as I said at the beginning of the episode too I, I think we have to take heart in the fact that there is so much representational criticism happening in mainline game studies as of 2017 2018 2019 so it's mm-hmm. something on the other side too,
0: and so to, to elaborate what I said was her own on Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry for that long digression. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I just want to point it out because I think the the way that she is reacting to Black Black Mirror can I think be an accessible <laughs> an yeah. accessible way to understand sort of what she's talking about. So Black Mirror, um, the the. Dystopian, semi-satirical, very hit or miss uh, British television series about the deleterious effects of technology on on contemporary society. Um, as I believe, I believe it was Daniel Ortberg who who first uh, put it that Black Mirror is about what if phones, but too much. <laughs> um, and that's obviously the the Black Mirror of the title of the series is about the idea of it's it's intended to reference the. Um, the surface of a smartphone or a tablet, right that mm. um is not currently being used. that black mirror that throws back to us our own face uh or like in a distorted capacity are our worst influences um, in its twilight zony moments uh, and really um the the thing that Annabelle says is that black mirror's focus on the idea of a black mirror actually forecloses. The the, the the ways we really in, interact with these devices, right? They, they are rarely black, she says, and I'm quoting her now. They are rather colorful, full of representations, and covered in our fingerprints. As such, the black mirror model presents a false distinction between an exterior, subjective, and illusory mode of analysis and a deeper, obscured, and more powerful and objective mode of analysis. The screen as black mirror in this model acts as a sharp divider between the two hermeneutics. Rather, we might figure that the screen... Figure the screen less as a stable boundary between the computational and the representational, the digital and the analog, or the subject and the object, and more as a porous zone, on, zone of contact through which each term is always potentially in contact with and causing changes in the other. Yeah, I agree with that. Yep, me too. Extremely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I. I mean, this is the kind of weird relationship I have with this book, right? This is a book that is, like, very invested in me. It, it invested in telling me that my intellectual trajectory is wrong, but every conclusion that's come to, I I fundamentally agree with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have as much skin in the game as you, I think, um, but I also like, I have been up front that I have had my own questions where I've been like, well, actually, I think this is, it would be more like this, but also, yeah, I don't disagree with this book. <laughs> uh, especially in, in a lot of, like, key ways, like this idea, this this takedown of the idea of the Black Mirror. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the end of that chapter.
1: We want to talk about uh, chapter three, and, and yeah. I should say, too, for people who haven't read it, um, it's not it's not a very long book. This is, this is uh, 134 pages of yeah. actual book.
0: Um, and like a tight four chapters and then a conclusion. So, mm-hmm. right. And um, the third chapter is called Rhythms of Work and Play, and this is going to bring us back to our old friends Candy Crush and Diner Dash. Yeah! Hooray! Um, and this uh, this chapter essentially so the, the the way that the book kind of develops is um, the first the first chapter is kind of it's it's the theoretical apparatus. Um, The second chapter is establishing um, touch and screens and smartphones. Uh, Chapter three, then, is about um, the ways that smartphones and, like, casual games uh, that are played on them uh, operate as particular effective management tools, I think is a way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. She calls them rhythmic interludes, um, which I really like, because that is often how I've thought about these these casual games. Um, and even, like, something—well, the, the the greatest casual game of them all, of course, Dark Souls. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, because I play that on Switch, I can very much play that as as a Candy Crush, right? I can pull my Switch out of my bag when I'm sitting on the train, and I—in I, the same way that when I pull out Candy Crush and know exactly what I'm in for— um, unless I'm unless I have just gotten to a new area in Dark Souls, I know exactly what I'm in for, and I have some sort of like little minor goal, right? So in the same way that uh, you use during your during your commute, you do so many levels of Candy Crush, um, and I like pull out my Dark Souls and I fuck around and get killed by a Hydra.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, or you know, go slay the Capper demon. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, that's that's something I feel like doing. Um, and so uh, what is really interesting about the ways that, uh, and again, I think you see the, the HCI background coming in here. Um, she highlights how so many uh, apps, I guess, or like so many, I sh- shouldn't say apps, like so many functionalities of the contemporary smartphone um, are bound up in individual productivity, Um there are lots of productivity apps, of course, um, but then there is just the idea that, like, oh, I have a map here, right? I have um, an easy way of consulting a search engine, uh, but that's, you know, excluding the idea, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, track my menstrual cycle on this, or, like, I, you know, have uh, a medication app on my phone that reminds me to, to take the pills that keep me from being depressed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, this is what phones do. And then she looks at how, like what happens when these devices uh, that seem largely set up for these kind of like self-management and productivity uh, uses get um, overlaid with gaming technology, right? Like what is what does it mean for, for this device to transfer into something um, recreational or ludic? And what she finds is that, you know, Uh, something that Shira Chess talked about, a lot of these casual games uh, are about abstracting and sort of refracting the types of labor that we're already using the phone to do. There's a lot of similar reading that's going on here in the sense of uh, looking
1: at Candy Crush, looking at uh, Diner Dash, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which also, in Kim Kardashian Hollywood, like all of these are things that are in Ready Player Two as well. Um, And what I think is interesting here is that that there's uh you know chess is getting at kind of like a two-sided thing right on one hand casual games are about in some fundamental way the way the industry understands its core player mm-hmm. which is like white women you know over 30 or something like that right you know she she has the specific data in that book and then it's also about like how your day-to-day patterns fit into those games right like it It kind of speaks in two different ways uh Mm -hmm. as an object and it's interesting to me that that for so much um kind of talk about the the representational layer right the 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 way in which we engage with these things um in this book this book doesn't quite get as as nitty-gritty um as chess does about like the bubbly aesthetics and you know the the way that things are written and the the types of stylizations that happen in these kinds of games um, mm-hmm. I just found that kind of like interesting um you know I, I really would have I would have liked the the big aesthetic argument that gets made in the last chapter and in the first chapter to like show up in relationship to labor here um where, where I kind of think it doesn't but um yeah it's i I, I like this I thought it was a good chapter mm-hmm this is a chapter that feels a little bit out of place to some degree, mm-hmm. um, and I think that it was published as a chapter of something else previously, uh, mm-hmm. um, which which makes a little bit of sense. Um, but uh, but yeah, if you are if you are a listener and you're interested in reading a little bit more of that chess style argument, and there's a more of a substantial engagement with uh, affective labor here, which is mm-hmm. cool. Um, you know, Chess really didn't dig into that too deeply. Um, you know, her citational apparatus is a little bit different. Although I will say that, that there are moves made here that talk about previous versions of immaterial labor. So they, uh, she of course writes about games of empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so on like 75, I wrote a note that she says, um, is a quote, play is figured as immaterial and an illusion that shields us from the knowledge of the material labor that went into producing the game itself. In this formulation, video game play is seen as a form of leisure that gets co-opted by neoliberalism and there's a little citational footnote, right, to, to Games of Empire, I think the first chapter of Games of Empire. Um, and I don't necessarily know if I think that that, A, that's what happens in the material labor critique in games. And I certainly don't think that that's the argument that's being made in games of empire. So they're kind of, I, again, in this chapter, I have these kind of like weird little quibbles, but, um, you know, much like other places where this happened in this podcast, I just want to stress that, that the ability to quibble with a book is good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) A book that gives you the ability to go, like, well, you know, I just don't agree with that interpretation. Here, Here's, you know, the way I think about it. That's something that's really positive uh, to mm-hmm. my mind because it means that they, A, they've made a strong claim and they've stuck to it and that it clearly is engaging in the field. Um, and, uh, it, and you can't reject it out of hand. Mm-hmm you know, there are lots of bad books out there that you can read the argument and be like, this is just, this is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like factually incorrect and just reject it. And I don't think you can do that with anything here, despite my kind of disagreements that they kind of uh, bounce through it. So I think it's good. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed the chapter, but, but yeah, really about work
0: um, and play as the yeah um, subtitle is. Do we want to cover actually um, the, the zaniness? Uh, yeah. If you want to, have you, have you read our aesthetic categories? i have not read uh i have not read that no okay wait okay then i'll i'll uh, swing through it if you want me to wait hold on our aesthetic
1: category yeah so um it, i guess one thing too that's interesting here is that towards the end there is a long engagement with cyan nye's our aesthetic categories particularly the category of the zany um Nye in her book argues that there are three aesthetic categories or modes of engagement with aesthetics and aesthetic objects that we undergo under contemporary capitalism right now. So one is the zany, one is the interesting, and one is the other one, the cute. Is it cute? Yeah. Huge, I, I had think, to run so. through them in my head um, and so, so as I said earlier like I my dissertation is really written around um Nye's work pretty substantially um, and so the example that gets most easily kind of plucked out of that to talk about the zany is that um, f- for her zaniness is a relationship to capital in which your labor power and your um, kind of malleability to the workplace is always available Right. So you can always adapt to the job that capitalism asks you to do. You can always laugh and grin and smile to do the thing that your terrible boss asks you to do. Um, it's just that kind of um, precariousness that becomes flexibility or it's mm-hmm. a precariousness that demands flexibility maybe. Um, and so the example that she uses and the one that, that, you know, it's in the article that she wrote beforehand. It's the one that people always talk about is Lucy from Isle of Lucy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the example of the, um, uh, the example that she reads is the, uh, the chocolate factory of that yeah. episode where eventually Lucy is just jamming her mouth full of chocolates in order to, to do the job, mm-hmm. um, to the best of her ability. Um, but yeah, so so she just argues that there is a quality of zaniness, obviously, that the workplace requires, if if we take Nye's um, kind of reading to be true. So the workplace requires it, but also these games replicate the conditions of needing zaniness and, and privileging zaniness as a way of engagement. So she talks about Diner Dash and Flow, and Flow is like you know, I don't know, silliness in the face of like, I've got to run a diner. What am I going to do? And then, and then going <laughs> along and doing that. That's my impression of uh, flow from Diner Dash, yeah. by the way. Um,
0: but yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's good. Um, well, and she specifically uses this to like, are you against Bogost actually? Who, yes, who, yes, who reads correct. Diner Dash as being, um, sentiment? He, 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 his argument is that Diner Dash is sentimental about labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, her sort of rejoinder um, using, using this bit of affect theory is like, you know, this like sentimental is the wrong word <clears throat> because it's not about like sort of this nostalgia for, for labor and sort of like a clear job. Um, and like clear tasks it's not really that it's uh about experiencing the way labor feels now where the better you get at your job suddenly the more responsibility you have and then the less good you are at your job and how like absurd this feels
1: (laughs) yeah and on page 90 she says uh thus these games appeal to players These games' appeal to players cannot be reduced to a simple notion of pleasure and easy tasks and the satisfaction of achievable goals. At the narrative, mechanical, and procedural levels, Diner Dash simultaneously represents a laboring woman, asks the player to perform efficiently on a digital device, and addresses a plain subject who is presumed to desire an escape from the dreary conditions of work. Which I think, it's it's even more than, than what you just said, right? It's like... Uh, of course the better you get your job the worse your job becomes but then also as a playing person you've got to be doing that work that like quick tapping and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um you know that that makes the game harder and so then therefore if game studies and game design theory is meant to be believed um that makes the game more
0: appealing because of that because of that complexity and the the horror of labor <laughs> um and that actually is is a nice little touchstone uh, to bring us into the next chapter if we want to move ahead, because that next chapter is called Games to Fail With. Um, yeah, yes. Um. Yeah, and specifically talking about failure in games and how it is funny. So this is a nice little um, building off of the, the absurdity of the zany in Diner Dash um, and sort of the way that, you know, basically something like Diner Dash or Candy Crush, the way that it is set up is that... Y- you are just moving through, I mean, this to some extent, this is all games, right? But, uh, it is just a, 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 sort of exercise of escalating complexity, um, to the point where eventually you are not up to the task of managing that complexity. And then you, you fail, right? You, you get to, you hit the level at candy crush that you can't beat, or you hit the level in diner dash that you can't beat. Um, and so what does, what does failure have to do with games? What does that affect do here?
1: Yeah, well, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of a... Um, well, so I say this, I'm kind of summarizing because I'm just not familiar because a lot of these pieces that she is talking about in this chapter are um, either like smaller web games, I've played a lot of smaller web games, but I've not played these, or they are museum pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that i just haven't access but to me the the kind of core of this chapter is you know in the in the scenario you just provided right when you can't accomplish that goal when you fail due to difficulty and you just can never get to the next level that there's shame associated with it right and she mm-hmm. kind of quotes tompkins at length about shame and then she says um this is on 108 she says i want to play dark souls with my friends but I'm afraid that they will think I suck at video games. I want to speak out against the sexist assumption made by a colleague, but I'm afraid I may be seen as strident. I want to say I love you, but I'm afraid that that you don't love me. The desire is expressed in the first part of the sentence, and the shame-induced barrier to that desire is expressed in the latter half. From the trivial to the quite serious in these examples using Tompkins' formulation, we can see how desire is forestalled and dampened but not extinguished by internalized shame. We still want what we want, but the butt of shame interferes. And so, the object she's reading in this chapter short circuit that basically because they are games that are designed to be failed and never overcome in the way
0: that Dark Souls or theoretically Diner Dash can be mm-hmm. but you have to just live with the failure right in that sense right they they avoid shame is that a way do you think that's a way yeah
1: yeah going? i think yeah. so right or 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 they right. um because the Because the middle part of the sentence, the but, Mm -hmm. can't ever intervene because they are not winnable in any substantial way, right? Like, there was never a condition under which you could be fulfilled. Right. And so then, therefore, they're at least interesting. Maybe they don't short-circuit. Maybe that's maybe too um, aggressive of a thing to say about it. But certainly, I think that she is positioning them as things that make us actively question our relationship to winning and our kind of, you know... Uh, Berlantian cruel optimism the idea that there could be a good outcome right. it complicates and, and maybe uh, pulls those apart to some mm-hmm. degree
0: right so sort of interestingly <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that I was a sort of vaguely familiar with um, the cybernetic fold essay um, from Kosowski, Sedgwick and Frank uh, it was this so the, the cybernetic fold essay is the essay about shame um, those kind of like, come those, those two thoughts enter um, that particular uh, field of affect theory in the, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is so interesting to me about like reflecting on that is when we were talking about this in, in my you know 19th century like narrative class, um, really what the takeaway for, for that sort of set of, of folks was was that shame was kind of a, a core part of subjectivity right like uh like the second that uh one can begin to feel shame is when uh we start getting a sense of characters of fictional characters as having interior lives um and it's so interesting to see that same thing like that that precise same sort of uh intellectual lineage right recurring here um but just like in a completely different context sort of saying that like no 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 the the shame mechanism is actually really bad or it can be really bad right this this uh games can trick us into feeling like uh we are losing because we are not good enough and Mm -hmm. the particular um examples that that puts forth here uh pippin bar messoff and cory archangel um are all concerned with first of all you know creating games that or games or game-like objects or installations or what have you that are obsessed with failure that always lead to failure and then are designed to make you realize that success was never an option yeah. Um and I was looking for like the the good pull quote for this. So mm-hmm. on
1: 129 she writes um, Their games are asking us not to celebrate failure, but to flail with it for a while and learn its contours. Maybe flailing with failure through games that jerk our bodies out of the smooth rhythms of frictionless labor or deny our participation at all will shift our attention away from perceived personal failings and back to the failures of larger ideological formation, say a user interface, a digital platform, or even an economic system. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, like the the first example she goes to is Cory Archangel, who has this uh, digital um, exhibition or installation, uh, the title of which I cannot remember precisely, but it's something like uh, self-playing bowling games or something very nondescript like that. And yeah. it's it's a series of I think four or five bowling video games that have been um, set up to play themselves. But all, like, you know, sort of hacked or reprogrammed, um, set up to play themselves. So you walk into, um, this room and you see this series of like four or five bowling games that are running on computers and projected on a screen they're playing themselves. Um, but the games have been, uh, hacked or set up in such a way that none of the game, like none of the games will ever not throw a gutter ball. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, so you're just watching these games just automatically throw gutter balls again and again and again. And of course, the, all of the sound effects that come along with games come along with this. So every, like, you know, the, the, like, sound effect of the onlookers being like, ooh, or whatever. Um, and the, rather than just being footage, it is important that these games are playing themselves um, for Annabelle in the way that she's under- understanding um, this particular exhibition, uh, because it would be one thing if it were just footage of, like, here here's footage of, of four people throwing gutter balls, and just watching that on loop again and again and again. Or here are four clips of four different games where someone, like video games about bowling, where someone threw a gutter ball, and watching that over and over again. Um, Annabelle wants to make the point that because those these these computer systems these game systems the arcade machines whatever like because they are there because they are running this process um the this installation uh, surfaces the fact that failure is always accounted for within the system by which failure is conceptualized right failure is never a thing that exists outside of whatever system or ideology. Um, it's not like a, a deviance, right? It is a thing that the ideology that the uh, subject has decided to name as failure, right? Failure has been, like, failure has been designed, it has been accounted for. Someone has desi- has decided how we are going to fail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, you know, that's something that, that quotation I just read, too, um, you know, it makes me think about because she writes, you know, um, uh, a user interface, a digital platform, or even an economic system. And I just think of, like, Giovanni Origi's work in the long 20th century, which is to say that capitalism is very good at failing. And, in fact, the the whole operative system of capitalism is one in which failure occurs, and then a new system can c- succeed on that failure and, say, buy up a bunch of debt.
0: Right, um, failing upward.
1: You, Yeah, exactly. And then use that debt in order to, um, you know, create uh, debt loads as collateral to secure more loans, for example, or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even even at that level, right – um, as you're saying, failure is built into the system, even at the 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 level of the largest system that we kind of can conceive of, other than um, you know, say maybe the climate. That might be a bigger, slightly bigger than capitalism, but <laughs> capitalism's everywhere, all the time, constantly. Even
0: it has a mode of kind of meta failure built into it
3: um, mm-hmm.
0: that's accounted for. So, right, Whew. and so yeah, what is important about these these examples, these games, is that they do not allow you to like going back to Dark Souls, right, uh, one of the, the things that is really interesting to me about Dark Souls is uh, it is not very different than most games because you just die a lot until you figure out how to not die as much. Like, that is how you play that game. <laughs> um, yeah. But... Uh, that is in a sense right that that idea of failing upward right i go into the room um i hit the button at the exact like i don't understand the animation of the enemy and what he's doing with his halberd so i don't block in time but i realize how i have failed and so the next time i go running into that room i know how to kill the guy with the halberd um but these games don't even allow for that especially like uh, i think Pippin Bars are probably the closest to this because Archangel is is an installation or exhibit. Pippin Bar has um, a a whole load of games, but uh, so he taught like the the Greek mythology games, I think, are the ones that um, she talks about sort of the most here. Where, like, you are Sisyphus and you have to work really, really hard to push this boulder up a hill. And of course, eventually, because we all know the story of Sisyphus, um, you're not going to be able to do it anymore and you're going to roll back down to the bottom. And, like, that's what the game is. Like, you've already done the thing that you were supposed to do, and you can just do it again yeah. and just fail again. Um, and then Mess Off, uh, she talks about uh, Nidhog and how uh, the visuals of that game do not... So the other thing that is interesting about this particular um, game and about Messoff's kind of deal generally is that their visuals in their games are abstracted and sort of crude in in such a way that belies their extremely persnickety and responsive controls. Yeah. So you have to do this weird thing when you're playing Nidhogg where uh, you have to reorient your relationship to the ways that it, you expect a game to present you visual information. Um, yeah. Because otherwise you're going to like totally over overstep or like uh, because the controls are so responsive in a way that you would not expect based on how the game actually looks. Um, you You have to like learn to knit those two aspects of the game back together in a really interesting way. It would be great to uh, to see this analysis continued over
1: Nidhogg 2. <laughs> and it's notoriously ugly and weird aesthetics. Yeah. Um, yeah, and after that analysis of, like, those three kind of uh, creators, um, uh, there is a... Like, it's not a detour because it all kind of comes together in the end, but there's kind of this turn into aesthetics, like at aesthetics qua aesthetics right mm-hmm. what are the ways at, at the representational level how do we interact with the work of art and how do mm-hmm. we experience it um, and, and we don't really get any classic aesthetic theory here right it's not like we're going to Kant or Schiller yeah. or any of those people right we, what we did get, Kant think about Nidhogg <sighs> what would Kant think about Nidhog? um <sighs> <sighs> I mean, I think he'd probably hate it. <laughs> probably, yeah. He'd probably hate it. And he'd probably hate it, but no. It's hard to know, right? Because it depends on, and you know, I'm deep in the Kant minds. Because, <laughs> you know, Sian I, I, like Trace it Back to Kant. I do all this kind of stuff in the dissertation. But, and I've been writing about Kant this week. And this is also why Fred Moten came up earlier. I've been writing about Fred Moten and, and David Lloyd and all these people. Um, and aesthetics. And, you know, it's a, it's a question of, do you think, you know, this is a real deep cut for listeners of the podcast. In Kant... Do you think in the Critique of Judgment that the most important thing, uh, thing that is in there, the most important pillar of aesthetics, is common sense, or do you think that it that is the beautiful, or do you think it's the sublime? Mm-hmm. And your choice between those kind of like three big you know pieces of the Critique of Judgment will help you determine if you think that uh, Kant would like Nidhogg. So that's some homework for those of you <laughs> at home. You 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 uh, you can send us an email. Let us know what you think um, but but we don't get that uh, in here um, we get uh, Jack Halberstam a bit from the Queer Art of fail- Failure but, and we get this kind of interesting critique which I, I generally agree with I think that mm-hmm. that video game studies across the board doesn't do a very good job with aesthetics we generally when we talk about aesthetics we generally talk about like the graphics you know mm-hmm. th- that tends to be the thing or, or sound you know think of your good EGM review sound 5.2 out of 10
0: yeah or whatever. I was wondering what you would think about this part, because I don't know if you remember a thousand years ago when we met, but you were you were deep into aesthetics at that point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm still still yeah. digging digging into the thing. I mean, yeah. So I mean, I think well, that I mean, at the, this was. I wanted. I just as another deep cut for the listeners of the podcast. When Cameron and I first became acquainted on Twitter, this this was the time when like one of the most used hashtags Cameron had was hashtag pure aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's that was like this was the ways that was like how I met Cameron. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and hashtag so... for aesthetics. Have, uh, uh, hashtag fuck art. <laughs> that yeah, was one. sorry yeah. for the
1: crude language, listeners.
0: Um, so, like, the second we got to aesthetics here in this chapter, I was like, oh, okay, let's see what Cameron has to say. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, I'm I, I'm less interested in it now than I than I was at, at the time, but there is something to me that that is. You know what the surface level. I mean, this is maybe why I have so many kind of fine grained um, quibbles with this book. Is that I am also deeply interested at what happens when you engage with the surface of something, and you know that came out of me reading people like An Chang. It came out of watching a lot of music videos, which are really about surfaces and kind of immediate readability, um, mm-hmm. and thinking about interfaces, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so, you know, there. On one hand, I agree that video games and the discourse around video games doesn't have a very good handle on talking about aesthetics. On the other hand, I would say that the vast majority of writing about video games that is not news and that is not, um, you know, announcements – is writing about aesthetics and it's not really even mechanics based. I mean, you know, just go scroll through Kotaku and you're going to see a lot of people talking about the full aesthetic value of something. I mean, you know, you can look at, you know, like, like Luke Plunkett, right. Mm -hmm. Works for Kotaku. He's an Australian team. Um, Luke, the vast majority of the things that he's writing and publishing are the aesthetic interplay of games, so cosplay culture, screenshots, production photos, um, concept art, all that kind of stuff, which is a little bit different what's going on here, but I just I do think that a huge amount of the ecosystem of games is centered on aesthetics. And I actually think that a large amount of writing about games, not the people that are being cited here necessarily. I, mm-hmm. I agree with the reading that's being done here, but I think that the vast majority of people are writing about the aesthetic experience of games, just not in those terms necessarily. And, you know, right. I wonder in order to do aesthetic analysis, do you have to begin your thing with saying, and now I'm doing aesthetic analysis? Hard to know. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, it depends on what your kind of, um, I don't know like basic barrier to entry is it for that that discourse but but I do agree with this part right so so she says on 120 Affect and aesthetics are intimately related. The term aesthetics is derived from the Greek word Greek word aesthesis, meaning sensation or feeling. Both affect and aesthetics seek to describe the visceral and immaterial ways we form relationships with and make meaning from our surroundings. Yet you would not know this from Game Studies' account of aesthetics. And then she kind of reads through um uh, Kirk Graham Kirkpatrick's book, uh, which we actually talked about recently in the Game Studies Study Buddies Discord. people were talking about that book quite a bit. Um, hmm. She says, The term game aesthetics is generally used to refer how games look, the style of animation, the heads-up display, the graphics, and so on. Aesthetics get collapsed into images. Um, a couple sentences later, This rather arbitrary separation approaches that wish to emphasize the ludic aspects as the essential feature of video games and connect them to the history of all game, all types of games in order to disentangle video games from other visual media and theories of representation. Um, I don't think any of that is incorrect, but I do think that what there, there's just so much writing and so many people talking about that that mode of connection. And maybe this is my Deleuzianism coming out, right? But a big metaphor for him, and this is a metaphor, or, or well, it depends on if you think it's a metaphor or not. But uh, a big thing for Deleuze is talking about the Proustian image of the wasp in the orchid, mm-hmm. meaning that the orchid in its Covolution, right, with the wasp has created parts of its reproductive organs to resemble a wasp. And so a wasp sees that, thinks, oh, it's another wasp for me to reproduce with, and approaches it, covers itself in pollen, and then goes to another orchid later. And the question then is, you know what is happening here and 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 for me right and for deleuze as well it is that the wasp and the orchid are reproducing they are just reproducing in different kinds of ways um you mm-hmm. know the wasp is a critical portion of the reproductive cycle for the orchid and many people have written about that image or that that kind of concept um as a way of talking about aesthetic experience we are the wasp the art object is the orchid. We come into contact with one another and something weird is happening here, but ultimately it's about reproduction It is about recreation. It's about transfiguring those two things. The wasp is now covered in pollen. The orchid is now completely devoid of pollen. You know, they come away fundamentally changed. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I agree with all of this, but, but I do think that, um, I, there are other ways I would go about like, um, operationalizing this. Mm hmm is what that long digression <laughs> means. <laughs> Alright. Uh,
0: yep. And then we have a conclusion.
1: Yeah, then we have a conclusion. I, I guess somewhere here in the middle I um I, I I didn't follow up on the the other claim, but I think that I that I said this well enough earlier that that uh, here in the middle, I think in chapter three, she talks about how uh, ultimately Brian Masumi and, and Deleuzean affect studies just can't get out of the words that it uses in order to describe the, the process of affect. And because it can't get out of those words, there's kind of machinic metaphors and the, the body um, as machine and things like that... Ultimately it never escaped the linguistic turn And so then therefore whatever benefit That that version of affect might have Just doesn't work Because it doesn't um, escape Traditional subjectivity It doesn't escape traditional bodies It doesn't escape any of that Um, I think that is a perfectly fine criticism That I I don't necessarily agree with But um, I just wanted to like Put the end cap on on that before the conclusion Mm -hmm. Games don't matter, Michael Games don't matter this is the Miguel Sicart quotation yeah. That opens the conclusion Games don't matter Like in the old fable We are the fools Looking at the finger When someone points at the moon Games with the finger Play is the moon
0: Yep that's a it's a it's an interesting idea to to take that video games themselves are not important but rather the the tendencies or ideas or cultural shifts that they are indicative of or gesturing to are are what is important and as you might expect um this is not something animal agrees with because you can see already how it reproduces a kind of surface depth sort of thing uh where you know the video game itself is not important it's it's the the idea that uh i don't know our our it's what's not important is the video game what's important is the gamification of culture mm-hmm. right that is that is one way of thinking about this um and Annable, of course disagrees because um she she's going to say that games do matter they matter uh for precisely the reason that SickArt is kind of like trying to discount them by saying that they're just kind of an instantiation or they're like unimportant indicators of something greater Um, and she's saying no they are the greater thing right they are the thing that is happening (laughs) Um, and it's precisely because they are so ordinary and so commonplace um, because there's been such a proliferation of games that is in, in fact how the bigger changes are going to happen because of the ordinariness of the games themselves, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So she, you know, ends kind of just hoping that she has uh, presented a kind of a way of approaching video games and affect theory uh, that brings them into productive conversation. Um, basically, through historicizing both of those ideas in in the ways that she has done throughout this book.
1: Yeah, on on one thirty-two, I, I really like this kind of even though it's not at the end, she she has kind of an anecdote about the MoMA um, acquisition of games right in the middle, which which yeah. is uh, which is interesting. But I, I actually think that the paragraph before that starts is um, like a you know this kind of really good emblematic conclusion. She says. In holding affect theory and video games together, my approach assumes that video games, their images, sounds, stories, mechanics, and interfaces can be read and interpreted as giving shape and form to particular feelings. Video games are not technologies capable of autonomously and unconsciously rewiring our bodies. Rather, they are a particularly popular form of representation through which we can trace and analyze how affect moves across bodies and objects in the present. Right? So, like, you know, they, they, they are a huge multi-billion dollar industry in which our feelings and our ways of engaging with the world move through like a train on train tracks. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I think I have maybe a different feel on how autonomously they can rewire our bodies, because I certainly think that games, you know, I think I'm on more closer to the sheer Chess side, right? I do think that designed identity is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the design of games, um, you know if we can think of of, of um, you know the machine and the human as kind of like tugging back and forth for what exerts the most control, I think probably the object, the art object or the machine or the video game exerts more control on us than we do on it, it on the average um, but ultimately yeah I mean I think that I think that that's right um, I, I like that kind of phrasing that she has at the end there mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that is playing with feelings. It's playing with feelings. Oh, yeah, another thing, too, just, but oh. just to, to read the quote of what you said. Um, on 134, she says, and, and this is maybe like my only, and, you know, this is why I spent the first hour talking about. Sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> she says, bringing video games in, into conversation with affect theory depends, and this book illustrates on historicization of both terms, a process that is necessarily partial the ways that we tell video game history and feel that history in the future will be shaped by the partial effect of archives that we form in the present. And I guess that my kind of criticism of that introduction in the first chapter is that I don't think that affect is like appropriately historicized. Um, I think it's historicized back to 1945. But um, to me, I, that's still an incomplete picture of what what affect is and how affect has operated as a way of talking about human experience. I mean, you know, affect theory gets a huge amount of, um, of its stuff from, uh, you know, gosh, what animal magnetism, mesmerism, all of that kind of stuff in the late 19th century. That's a big part of
0: the trajectory of affect theory. Um, well, and in like, I mean, we've already talked about Spinoza who's 17th century and he's, um, coming out of a cultural context in which there's a long medieval history um, and sort of even contemporary to him, you know, sort of philosophical-ish history of writing about just like the passions.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I guess, you know, when she was saying that um, that Masumi et al. are trying to rehabilitate the, the, oh gosh, she says pre-something. Gosh, I just read the quote earlier. But, oh, oh, uh, pre-structuralist. You know mode of thinking and then they're just kind of re-injecting that into the present i am just not quite sure how sylvan Tompkins, in in you know embracing the affects how that's not happening there too um you know they're still you know you you line up those affects and it does start looking a lot like the the passions uh to some degree you know medieval catholic you know i don't know doctrine <laughs> yeah theory um, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm interested to see a lot of the work that comes out of this book in the sense of like people reading this and then applying it. Um, I saw a really interesting presentation at SCMS from uh, Oscar Moralde, who is using this to talk about uh, adaptation uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a brief chat with him. So it, it, I'm very interested to see where that kind of stuff goes. And I'm sure that lots of people are reading this by virtue of it winning the SCMS award. Cyan um, Nye, similarly, did not win the CMS award, but won the MLA Best Book Award, mm-hmm. you know, when that book came out too. And that allowed it to kind of get a lot of traction. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm curious to see who picks this book up and under what conditions. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly going to engage with it in the future.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely think I have something here because, like, I've never written, as I said, anything specifically on affect, but I have an extremely, like, way too long blog post that I did years ago after I did my comps reading. Um, do you remember this? Did you ever read it? I, hope I think did. I did. I it's think I, did we get in an uh, argument about it? Maybe we did. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't uh, remember either. I do remember. But it was. That. I mean, it was me talking about stuplimity and like glitches. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, because I was like very interested in. Um, I don't know, like so stuplemity this is like now we're just going to talk about us uh sorry <laughs> animal but like <clears throat> stuplemity is another um another uh nigh term right where she is talking about sort of this the the like confusion of like the sublime and the stupid and my sort of sense when i was reading her on that because i was reading her for my quals at that time um was like oh this is how video games feel <laughs> like a lot of the time is this like a weird conjunction of like grand, incredible adventure and like really, really stupid things like, Oh, I, you know, can't open this door because I don't have a key. That's the right color. Or this door just doesn't open. Or this door just doesn't open, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, or like, you know, there's one other person in the world, and what they have to say to me is, I hear that there's an ancient sword somewhere in the forest. Uh, but that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, I I am interested in trying to come back to some of that thinking, uh, especially in light of this book, because I think it does give me a better handhold to talk about um, games in the ways that I think that they manipulate affect uh, than I had back then.
1: Maybe we should just read a cyanide book. Maybe just just has nothing to do with games. They're good. They're they're interesting. They are. I think that methodologically they're very uh, they're very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, be a good thing for more people to be talking about in game studies. I'm really I'm really excited. Um, because every time I write about Cyanide in relationship to games, I have to go, well, see, no one really writes about Cyanide 9 games. But if they did, they would get XYZ benefit. Now I could be like, <laughs> oh, there's a book where someone did. yeah,
0: And it was productive and helpful. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's the end. I would uh, check the mailbox, but I don't remember the password for it. So <laughs> sorry, guys. Michael. <laughs> To um, out. I'm 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 gonna figure I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, figure it out by the next time we record because I realized last time we didn't even talk about the mailbox, mm-hmm. um, so this time I was like, okay, I'll check the mailbox. But the problem is Windows installed an update and erased all of my like information. <laughs> Mm. Had like a big system refresh
1: or whatever. I don't know. It, this it, is how know. we uh, get away with deleting all the emails every month. Yes, exactly. I'm,
0: like, I'm sorry. I don't know. There was just an update. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Windows update. Now I don't remember the the password to my email. Sorry, sorry. Um, and it was like some weird complex thing that I made up. That was. I <laughs> uh, maybe I emailed it to you or something. Who knows? Uh, anyway. I promise I promise all of you listeners uh, that if you have something you want to say to us, uh, then please send it to game studies, study buddies at gmail.com, And eventually I will figure out how to get into that mailbox and I will read the letter beyond that email address. Michael, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Warren
1: is dead. You can find me at C. Combleman. If you enjoyed the show two and a half hours of talking about a book. Um, You can support us on Patreon. Uh, You can look down in the description below or you can go to at range touch and you can see us talking about the Patreon over there. You get some exclusive content. Recently we've canceled a couple shows uh, due to some some staff changeover and things like that. Uh, But new things are coming down the pipe um woo. and woo and you will uh we'll learn more about that either later this month or at the very top of june so just sit tight and uh keep doing it and of course there's going to continue to be game study study buddies content over there so um yeah thanks so much for listening